I'll start. If you guys think it sucks, we can just get rid of it. <laughs> okay. 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 So, a Russian, an American, and a Welshman sit on a sofa. What is this? Some kind of joke? No, it's hobby sofa. Hobby Sofa. I was sober. But that was last episode. <laughs> right. And um, I also, in the last episode, I um, set a record of amount of times I said basically in an episode. <laughs> if you don't believe me, count it. I am Andre, better known on the forums as Duck21. That's duck as in bird, quack quack, not duck as doctor, although we do have one like that. It's of course Duck Loxley. <laughs> How are you doing, Richie? Hello. <laughs> uh, what's up, I, Duck? It, it's <laughs> gotta be because you're, you're, you're either Russian or because of the, the British influence that somehow duck and dock became the same word. Oh, it's British. Well, well, you know, in the Back to the Future you got duck as well, you know. Yeah, and uh, also we have a, this time we have a third member, third co-host of Hobby Sofa, he's not a guest anymore, he agreed to be a, our permanent third member, it's of course uh, William Anderson, um, who I just call him Mr. Anderson, uh, Bill, oh, the point the where you man. say, my name is Neo! <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> Richie, you're never going to let me do another introduction after this. I wouldn't. <laughs> Keep on what a going. fantastic <laughs> start. Yeah, that's it. I've done it. Oh, <laughs> I wanted more. Oh, next time. <laughs> no, that's the ending, Andre. Next time on Hobby Sofa. <laughs> okay. Well, oh, Richie, you can do your joke now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll splice it around. Okay. I think you should keep it just like it got recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well. I think I will. <laughs> okay, so what's on the uh what's on, what what's the sofa topics for the day? That, well, well we're, we're they're likely on... to cover ones. <laughs> we never cover everything. Uh, uh Bill, you're supposed to say it ends tonight. That's another news. Yes, uh, Jeez, I need to go back and watch The Matrix. It's been too long since I've seen it. I'm missing all my lines. <laughs> <laughs> Just as long as the first one, because remember the second and the third never actually happened. Well, I said The Matrix. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> cool. Just making sure. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Well, last time we didn't quite finish with Infinity. Well, you're welcome to ask Bill. You're welcome to ask rules well, about a uh, question. Before we start, actually, about that, I think we need to do a bit of a, um, a redact here because we were talking about um, briefly about um, unit profiles and how certain ones aren't available. Turns out they actually are. Well, they are in the PDF. Yeah. yeah. Now, well, that's what I told you. There was a PDF, but not on, not in printing. No, but that's the thing. But everything that was there is available. So all the units they do have version three and three profiles. Yes, so. and and the weapon profiles only not the special rules, unfortunately, not yet. But you know the profiles are there, so that's that's you know because yeah, we do, I, I I thought that we were saying that they weren't. So if that was if that's how it came no across. no I was saying that 
that they released the profiles. That's what I said. But, you know... So, so let me yeah, ask... Richie, you, I, you I, need I, to re-listen <laughs> last episode. <laughs> but, so, Andre, I know you played Infinity before. Richie, let me ask you, as somebody new getting into the game, mm-hmm. how do you feel about the possibility of buying models where you also have to go download a PDF and do your own printout to get the rolls for Um It's a double-sided thing. Um, because I do dislike it on principle, because I know, you know, for example, um, you know, my dad likes to do a lot of wargaming. Um, he has very limited internet access. What he wants to do is turn up at a shop, buy the books, and have it in print. That's in, what I want to do as well. So, you know... Um, in my case, however, I live online, so I personally haven't got a problem with it, but I completely see why it would cause a problem to people, and it shouldn't be like that. So it's a double-sided thing. Um, but at the same time, because... <clears throat> because, you know, I, really, these, in my opinion, the way things forward is using things like what we saw with Malifaux with stat cards. I think the the book of tables of stuff, in my opinion, it's, it's a, it's a laboured task anyway and is getting... I mean, Infinity has quite a good... Yes, to be fully updated, but um, things like iPad apps that allow you to do rosters with with stats and all of that included. Um, I don't know about other things. I think, I think War, War Room and things like that are similar going on. So, yeah. I think it's, it's something that could be overlooked, but at the same time, there's plenty of people that it will cause a hindrance to. So, so here's why I ask, and I, and I think that's an interesting, I, I, I think that's a great take. For me, I, so I just got a new game, and what I was finding, I, you know, I'm going through, I'm putting my, the new game together, I'm getting ready to teach my wife, and I notice one of the models, not one of the ones we were playing with, but one of the models that came didn't come with the stat card. So I quickly emailed the company and asked them to send me a replacement stat card. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I have the book, I can always make a copy of the stat card out of the book and use it that way. Mm-hmm. So not a big deal. Um, I'm thinking about some other games I have coming where I can always go online and download the PDF, and I have all the rules so I can proxy models. I yeah. can, you know, if I don't get the stack cards in time, I can always, you know, just print it out of the PDF. I still find that I really like having that stat card, and I'm wondering if it's because since I stopped playing 40K and fantasy GW games so, mm-hmm. you know, a period of time ago, years ago, I've grown accustomed to having some sort of stat card, you know, some yeah. some sort of small reference that's not on an army builder sheet, um, not in an app like War Room. You know, War Room, you can play the whole thing out of the app, but I still like having the card there. It's an easier, for me, something in, something about having that tangible card is clicking in my head. Yeah, it's convenient. And, yeah, and then not having to print it out and cut it out myself, but actually getting... You know, a cardstock card, not having to create it myself. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I and I ran into that funny enough with Dead Zone as well, um, where I was like, you know, I could, pro- you know, the, I'm sure the Dead Zone guys will love this. I can proxy an entire army because I hate the models from one of the armies, <laughs> but I think it's a, I think it's <laughs> a great army later. to use. <laughs> More on that later. Yeah, but where I was going is, as I'm looking at proxying this army, I'm thinking to myself, man, I would go spend, you know, six, seven dollars. Mm. You know, two, three pounds to to pick up a set of stat cards to use with my proxies. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, 
I really like what I've seen for... I, mean, I have no idea what the War Room is like, so I'm pretty sure what I'm going to describe now is probably very similar to what the War Room has. Um, but I know um, it's currently being updated for the 3rd edition rules, but it's, I've been playing around with the 2nd edition for Infinity, and it um, allows you to put your points in to see how many points you've got, because all the stats, all the, all the different special abilities, what the special abilities have, and what is going on with my connection? Can you guys hear me okay still? Yeah. Yeah? This is so weird. I keep, I, my, my connection keeps spinning. Um, so it's probably, it's probably okay, I got uh, something on my screen saying William Anderson is losing you guys. <laughs> that, that <laughs> and you're back. <laughs> yeah, that's that's weird. I keep getting weird stuff popping up with Skype. That's strange. It's probably, it's probably me. Anyway, um, and yeah, one of the um, great things is that you can mark off as people die and how that affects your score and whether your team needs to do fleeing tests and all these different things. And that for me is quite useful because it's essentially, it works just like how back in the days of Malifaux you'd mark off the wounds on the on the stat cards. Yep. It's the same type of thing but in an, in an app which, you know, again, I'm, I'm, never, I'm never without either my, either my iPhone or my iPad. Yes, except most things in Infinity only got one wound. Yes, so. So, just, so you can do it, it's just simply dead or not. I'm assuming... Now, is that, a, is that an app that um, the guys from Infinity put out? or no, Or Corvus Belly put out? Okay, no. so it's a third party that was created? That's correct. Um, what's okay, Corvus that's nice. put out is a... Um, their they, army builder thing, which I'm not a big fan of, because it doesn't... It, well, it requires Flash, so I can't do it on my iPads. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> I need flash. Well, the new one, the new one's gonna be HTML5, so. Oh, well, as long as it as long as doesn't use flash, it's okay, because. <laughs> one second. My little one's crawling after me again. Sorry. Uh, talk among yourselves as they say to the school. Now, how do you feel about the updates, Andre? Have you started to get back into Infinity now that the uh, third edition is out? Well, uh, I. I think the uh, the rule updates themselves are almost entirely very positive. The rules themselves. It's just uh, the the fact that uh, they didn't release a hard copy of the actual rules. I mean, you listened to our last podcast, so oh, you, yeah. oh, you yeah. know the score. And uh, it's just, uh, I mean, I have similar thing with Bushido, for example. I am. Um, that a couple of years ago, that went to a new edition, and they released a proper hardbook uh, edition of the rules, which I didn't have at this point. But uh, they had like PDFs, and I thought I could read online PDF, but I never really memorized it. I just like, I don't like looking at digital books. So, okay. Um, yeah, I didn't really. So I have this lots of these cards with profiles, and uh, they um, they. Uh, so, like the certain uh, stats have well uh, special abilities have changed and also they completely replaced the concept of uh, triggers with special attacks and special defenses and uh, you know I didn't quite understand what the card does it's only now when I just got the book now I began to understand what it actually means now gotcha gotcha yeah <laughs> yeah because uh, yesterday I just received my uh, uh, Bushido uh, second edition book. Well, that's a good news. The bad news is that my postman decided to ram it through the letterbox. <laughs> yeah. So it's slightly bent there, but <laughs> I need to put it that, uh, like, 
sandwich it between books and stuff to straighten it up, but yeah, been reading it quite a bit and uh, gonna get quite a few more Bushido models. <laughs> yeah, Richie? Yes, back. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay, hopefully That's you right. should be uninterrupted now. Okay, so here's the big question I have. Yeah. When I got my original demo of Infinity, mm-hmm. um, you know, interesting game. It, it was a, I, I think it was a good demo. Um, however, what got me was, for whatever reason, initially, I completely could not wrap my head around the um, the order mechanic. Yeah. So I always found myself with one supermodel. And then very confused why I couldn't activate the rest of my models. Yeah. So, so I got, you know, I, I understand the basics. I just couldn't get it into my head that, um, you know, the, the, uh, not to use cheerleader mode, if you will, where everybody else is a cheerleader for the one supermodel that's going to activate. Yes, but if, uh, the, uh, this uh, supermodel goes somewhere without support, it'll probably get killed. Oh, it did. It did. I mean, I rammed a, a werewolf down uh, um, my old co-host Mike's throat and then proceeded to watch him evaporate the rest of my, uh, that and the rest of my force. Um, that said, you know, I, I understand it, you know, from a, it's the different, what is this, the difference between hearing and listening, right? I understand it. I see it. I just have trouble wrapping my head around it. And as I've come to understand more, that's one of those mechanics that hasn't changed. It's like, it's sort of a core mechanic of how infinity works. And I think that's one of the biggest mechanics I have trouble with. Yeah. Uh, is, actually, is that I order. find that, I find it not that much different from Relic Knight. Because in there you have miniatures which are just meant for blocking. And you know, in here you have to position your miniatures where they will do a lot of arrows, you know, uh, reaction orders. I can, I can see that understanding. I think where it's the difference, and, and it may be a very minuscule difference, but it's that, it's a difference in how those two mechanics work that decreases my enjoyment of the game. It's the idea that I have X number of models that are contributing ac- action points mm-hmm. that I then can assign wherever I want so I can create that cheerleader moment as opposed to Relic Knights where a mo- each model has their own set of actions and movement. Yeah. You just don't always have to activate every model. But models you don't activate don't necessarily or actually don't at all contribute extra actions to somebody else. Yes, they do contribute because you you use them basically for reaction orders. You block, you know, uh, like areas of space. So you, if your opponent moves there, they'll shoot. Mm, I would have to look. I, I don't know any models that shoot if if something moves into range without activating. Everything it. is. Okay. Can I step in for a second? Yeah, go on. You okay, do it. Two, 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 two quick things. Okay, so one of the things talking about talking about um, arrows, 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 however you want to call them, uh, they stand for. Uh, was it alternative? Um, no, reaction, reaction order. Order. Oh A-R-O. no, no, I like reaction orders. Arrow, yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that basically every model that has a ranged weapon has an eight-inch aura around it, and the moment another person steps into that, even if it's part of a movement action. What um, are you talking about, Richie? What 8-inch aura? It's as far as they can see. That's an 8-inch aura, isn't it? No, no, 8-inch <laughs> aura, I think, is for, is for going on, um, 
suppressive fire is 18 Chora. If there's no 18 Chora, it's okay, yeah, well, as far as you can see. Line of sight. Whatever. Line whatever. of sight. Whatever. So the point being is that if someone moves past this person, if they're looking at them, they take a shot. Yeah, okay, I see what you mean. So that's, you, what, that's, um, that's what that's talking about. So the idea is that you'd put people up to, like I said, that you guard fire lines. Yep. And so you're blocking out areas, you know what, well, you can go across there, but if you do, then you're, you know, you're gonna get shot at by my people. So, where Possibly is, by you, multiple so people. So in the as case well. of where, you know, you might be in other games where everyone has, say, one or two action points per model, um, you'd be like, well, I want to keep that model there. I'm going to keep him guarding it. So actually, I'm kind of wasting the action points. The idea is you're moving them to another unit. Um, that said, um, I know another terminology I've heard. I've heard two in reference to this. You've got the cheerleader, which is in reference to the models that are supporting. And then you've got going Rambo in, in reference to the model that's using all of them. Okay. And um, from what I've heard, one of the classic starter te- tactics is having a model with something like a, um, a, a, like a cloaking type thing to allow him to start much further up the board or perhaps something like an advanced combat jump so we literally start in the enemy deployment zone and so one of the classic tactics is you do that you jump down with this you know poof, and you go Rambo using all your action points and you just start shooting everyone the problem with it is apparently if you do that every time you're doing something you're generating alternative reaction orders. So every time you're constantly running around you're getting shot at. So actually you're increasing the chance of you getting injured. Um, And also, while you're doing that, hopefully the opponent has um, developed, has deployed sensibly and is enabling you to actually, you know, so actually you're doing this you're dropping down. At most you're getting maybe one or two people, but they but, but meanwhile you've used all of your action points and then the enemy gets to have all their action points so they can spread out and capture objectives. So from what I understand, in, in a kill versus kill scenario, the cheerleading and the Rambo works really well. But when you're actually playing scenarios, which are objective-based, it actually is a hindrance rather than a help. Hmm. So for I guess so. So this brings up the great conversation, right? For you, it's a it's a balance thing. The fact that it's not really unbalanced, that it, there's counters to um, the action I mean, and everything I else. I, I haven't experienced it myself, so I, I don't hmm. really know whether it also, is Also, this uh, com- uh, combat jump, as it's called, um, it's uh, been nerfed in the third edition yeah. as well. Because uh, previously, if you fail the jump, you land somewhere close, usually. This time, if you fail the jump, it's like, was it 18 inches away? Uh, I think if you fail the jump, you're straight back to your deployment. Uh, no, that's if you failed your infiltration. I think that's it's same. With, I think it's same with um, advanced no, combat jump. No, no combat jump. It's like uh, you deviate eighteen inches. It uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, and and I guess for the for what I was asking, to, uh, to me, I'm not arguing that it's unbalanced. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I haven't played nearly enough games. Hey, I've played one demo game. But the whole cheerleading idea, the whole idea of moving those AP around, even if you're going to give everybody else AROs, the fact that you can move those around, consolidate them into one or a small number of models, I, you know, I can't, I, I can't put my finger on exactly why I don't like it. I just know that that's one of those things that really didn't click with me in relation to Infinity. It's one of those parts of the game that I immediately went, ooh, yeah, I don't like this. Yeah. Uh Bill, the thing is, if you move something in the line of sight of like four opponents' miniatures, you'll get four mm-hmm. shots back. Four I get shots that. that you will you doing something. <laughs> yeah, no, I I get that. I get that. Every action you make, there'll be like four shots. At you. No, no, I get. 
I get exactly what Bill's saying. You know, he's, he's it's not saying about he's not saying it's about balance and this, that, and the other. It's it's a flavor thing. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's really. I mean, I mean, it goes back to the same thing. I the the new models. I think a lot of the new models are nice because it, to me, it appears they're removing some of the more uh, some of the heavier anime aspects from the models I've been seeing come out. Yes. And I'm not a big anime fan. In fact, you know, it's one of the things I said about Relic Knights. The biggest, one of the biggest flaws I see with Relic Knights for me is the fact that it is anime. Mm. Can I pause you one more second? She's just crying again. (laughs) Actually, someone I know got himself a Nebula Corsa starters just because they're uh, their question night look exactly like Captain Hairlock. Which yep. is an anime character. I lost you there, Andre. Bill, you still You're there? You're saying that... Uh, yep, can you hear me? Hello? Andre? Bill, you're cutting out. Hello? Can't hear you, sorry. I can hear something like, like noise, someone typing very furiously. <laughs> I'm really not typing furiously. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, for a second I have this can you hear me now? popping up on my screen again saying you, nope. someone's losing you. Okay, that's I can right. hear you, yes. <sighs> okay. Sorry about that. Back again. Right, where were we? Hey, Richard, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, okay. So I think Andre was having trouble hearing me a minute ago. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's bad Just making time, sure it's it? not my internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where were we? So I was, I was mentioning that one of the things, well, first let's make sure Richie is still there. Or, I mean, uh, yeah. Andre's still there. Yes, I'm yep. still there. I can <laughs> yeah. hear you. You know, so I was just mentioning, from a flavor standpoint, the cheerleading and moving the AP around yes. is, is I think, one of those flavor aspects that I'm, I'm not a fan of. Yeah. Now, I do have to admit, and I, you know, what I had said previously was, as they remove some of the heavier anime elements from the game, I am liking the new sculpts more. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. Infinity was one of the examples that both you and Andre brought up when we talked months ago about mm-hmm. digital sculpting and your dislike for digital sculpting. Yeah. <laughs> and I now, think that, I think you guys are you guys are in on the new uh, sculpts. What's up with that? <laughs> well, well I always like I yeah. always like digital sculpting, really. But uh, the thing is, uh, a lot of what Richard didn't like had more to do with the, the inexperienced of uh, digital sculptors to deal with the actual miniature design. Mm. I mean, okay. If you if you go back and listen to it again, I'm pretty sure I hope this is what I said. I may not have. So anyone can correct me if anyone wants to go back and check or just remember. So I'm pretty sure what I did say was that actually I liked their new bikers they did. Because those I've always I've always liked. I thought they were amazing, and those were the ones that, to my knowledge, were their first or one of their first digitally sculpted ones. No, no, not one of the first. They did it for a while. <laughs> to my knowledge, they were one of the first. Okay. Fair enough, and and I could be remember. I mean, I I remember sort of the high level of the conversation, but I know we did look at the bikers. Yes, we did. And I'm so. pretty sure I said actually I liked them. they just re- in the next release 
thing where yeah, they're gonna have, bikers, yeah. yeah the, the female one and yes. the Nazarova sisters. Yeah, that kind of made me laugh. The uh, the twins who don't look who are painted to not look anything alike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so I actually I did kind of like I did kind of like those bikers, and it did kind of throw things off a little. And it's one of the things that made me talk to Andre about this, and you know we came to the conclusion that it's not actually digital sculpting per se that's the issue; it's how they do it, and how mm. a lot of a lot of sculptors, um, well, the vast majority of the ones digital sculpting at the moment, they use the same techniques you would use to a video <coughs> game model. Whereas Corvus Belli, they do it for specifically for modelling, and the main no. difference being that the depth of the detail is a lot deeper than no. you would normally see. No, so, what they do is they're compensating for it to be shrunk. That's it. They're, it's, they're doing something which they're not going to be shrunk later, so you don't do tiny detail. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, it's, it's making everything more pronounced. So yeah. as a result, when it comes to the actual producing of it, it will become less pronounced and it ends up looking like it should. Whereas I find a lot of the other companies it ends up lacking detail. It looks great in the render. You think, oh, it's amazing. I would love to have it as a model. Exactly. Exactly. No, but I see what you're saying because then when it gets shrunk down it actually washes some of that detail away. Exactly. I mean, I well, I remember my first time when I opened up my Dark Depths box and seeing the hunger and darkness and the almost flat skin he has. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you mean the smiling sperm monster? Exactly. <laughs> well, I bet I could, like, do, like, paint textures and the uh, color transitions the, exactly, on that's it. that's the thing. It's, it's, it requires someone to paint the detail rather than it being there. You know, I gotta admit, I need to find my own American version of a pet Andre just to keep around to paint models for me. <laughs> well, uh, you have a, you're gonna have a crystal brush, uh, uh, when, uh, paint something for you. I am, well, so, yeah, I am. He, uh, he got the silver last year. I am looking forward to that. I'm gonna have him do... Pay, how much you paying him? Uh, fair amount. <laughs> you don't wanna talk about it. No, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to this way. My wife is in the state. I don't want to admit how much I'm having him. <laughs> um, you know, uh, tell me which guild ball faction, you know, you, uh, you're getting him to paint. I'm gonna, I'm gonna paint the same one. <laughs> I, well, I, I'm really leaning towards, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but I'm really leaning towards having him paint the alchemists. Oh, I think okay. the alchemists will really really give enough detail and enough textures to show off, you know, to to be that level of painting. Mm. I don't like the alchemist. <laughs> That's fair. Oh, oh, well, it's not going to happen now. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was kind of thinking towards, like, morticians, maybe, or... Yeah. I do like... See, I love I, I love the morticians, but... um. I don't know. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of area. I I could see why you would like him, Andre, because there's a lot of smooth areas for freehand on there. Uh-huh. And lot of feathers really as well. Good. I'm gonna yeah. do like uh, lots of. The, I make the feathers really colorful. See, the thing is, I I don't have two sets of morticians coming, and I want to play them sooner than uh, I would get them back from the commission. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned about um, the new sculpts for Infinity. 
Bill. Yeah. I mean, that's actually one of the things that got me into it. When the, when I saw the Operation Ice Storm box set and the two sets you get with it, I was just like, oh my god, those look amazing. Oh, and it sold me straight away, and so I've been painting them up. And more importantly, is I'm looking at them, going, I can see there was, you know, not only is that an opportunity for me to learn the game, but also they would make so many great proxies in loads of other games I play. <laughs> mm. uh, now you, Richard, you you got Operation Ice Storm and the N3 book, yes. right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I I was gifted um, Operation Ice Storm from my wife for Christmas. Fantastic present, absolutely amazing. Would recommend to anyone. And basically, while reading through the rule book, because I mean, like I said, I've I've watched videos and people have tried to explain to me how the rules work, and I've just been like, oh, I don't know. But reading through the Operation Ice Storm guide, I mean, of course, it's skipping out loads of d- detail, but it's just going over the basics. And I was like, oh my god, for the first time ever, I actually feel like I know how to play the game. Well, uh, speaking of which, uh, Bill, if yeah. you get yourself Operation Ice Storm, you could uh, get this little book which kind of uh, uh, introduces you to the game could actually get you to overcome these uh, blocks of this uh, ideas like uh, cheerleading and all but it'll give you like the basics <laughs> that's a very yep. big expensive investment in order to get over that block <laughs> but why but why would that get me over the idea of cheerleading no it's just it's sometimes people find it like difficult to comprehend this concept that there's always your turn. <laughs> and, uh, but again, I, I get that. I really do. I, I get oh. the ARs and how they work. I think that's a cool mechanic. Um, I, I'm just not a fan of being, uh, of, again, it's a flavor thing. I'm not a fan of consolidating all, uh, the ability to consolidate yes. all my AP onto a single model or onto two or three models. Mm. I, I really like the idea of each model activates with its own, even if it's a variable amount of AP, with its own set of actions that it can do, that you're not just going to, that if you activate a model, mm-hmm. it's, it can't, you know, it has the opportunity to not, well, I don't know how to say this right, that it's not going to have actions. Without having some other effect like a paralyze or a fear or something like that on it, that, this model has decided to give all of its actions, even if I choose to activate it, to give all of its actions to these other models over there and can't do anything. Mm. <clears throat> That's really where the, where the sticking point for me. And, and it really is just a flavor thing. Well, it's just something you're not, you're not used to, that's all. And actually, it's quite uh, realistically represents the modern combat, that you have, like, people just watching, you know... Andre, we're not here to convince Bill that he likes the game. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> what, what material is the mat made out of? Uh, it's generic poster material. Okay. So now, is it thicker or is it is it? Um, give me a second. Poster. Got it right here. It's paper. Well, yes, it's paper. It's uh, plasticky paper. Plasticky paper. Okay. Let me see. So it's. Slightly, slight, as in, like a nano millimeter thicker than a normal poster. You probably, the average, you probably wouldn't notice this. So, I mean, yeah. everyone I've spoken to, they always say, you know, if you want to use it, laminate it. And then the uh, the buildings are all cardstock, right? Yes, they're, they are. And while they themselves are kind of flimsy, they're designed in a way because their shape that um, the uh, boxes you buy the models in. 
well, the more than one model boxes. Um, they're, cer- they're all the same certain size, and they're designed that you can put these boxes into the buildings to reinforce them. Oh, nice. So, if you're, so, you know, most, I'm, I don't know about you, but personally, I hoard all my little boxes. So it actually gives you use for the boxes you're hoarding. That's ah. kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, Richie, so yes. you paint your nomads first, yeah? I'm kind of painting them both at the same time. Oh, okay. <laughs> so because you said you were going to concentrate on nomads first and uh, oh, thought, right. Yes, mainly because that's, the, yeah, if, if, because that's the faction I want to actually buy into. It's just uh, because I think, okay, if I'm going to... I don't really not sure what to do with Panosiana at the moment, so I was gonna do like nomads first as well, but then I thought, okay, if I paint my nomads and Richie gonna uh, like bring his and we play, then Richie gonna get depressed. I won't, I won't. It's okay. We've got very different so, styles. <laughs> yeah, I take yeah, but my if we bring exactly the same, <laughs> same, same, same models, you know, so I thought I'd start from combined army instead. Yeah, but I mean, I've got, I've got, um, my, I've got my goat geckos. That's that's a difference. Mm. Oh, speaking of which, how are you gonna put? Uh, have you designed like two hundred point force yet? Uh, I designed three hundred. Ah, why? No, it's just because I don't think I'll have a three hundred point. Well, that's thing. okay. I can knock it down. That's fine. I mean, I haven't actually got three hundred points, but I've got one on back order. Okay. The thing is, if you use that um, sanctioned bounty hunter yeah. as the second uh, mobile brigada with a shotgun, mm-hmm. you're gonna have like 196 or something points, something like that. <laughs> okay. And uh, I have uh, two. Well, if my combined army, I can probably make uh, 199 points. Okay. So that's two 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 hundred points. Okay. Thing. When, when we play a game, we'll play at two hundred. Okay. I'm happy with that. I lost you, Richie. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said when we when we play, we'll play at two hundred. I'm happy with that. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I just need to so. get myself to uh, the box that's called uh, the Tarazi Witch Soldiers, and then I'll have basically two hundred point fours. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, Bill, you're saying. Now, how does it how does it feel playing out of the box? I, I mean, obviously you're enjoying the game, but mm. you know, sort of give me some more insight because that was one thing. You talked about how much you liked it, but what are the pieces that are sort of scratching various itches in your brain, if you will, the various gaming itches? Um, tough question. It is a tough question. <laughs> I mean, for me, it kind of feels like the game is a halfway house between the modern day... Um, I mean, for starters, it's, you know, I go with all my sides and you go with all your sides. Um, but by having things like the AROs and the skills and all of these different things and the upgrades you can give your people, um, it kind of feels like it's a halfway house between something like 40k and Malifaux 1st edition. It's as if it's, it's, it feels like a bridge between them, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm sure okay. other people will completely disagree with this. But this is how it feels to me. Um, because, I mean, the, the simple fact that it's I go with all of mine and then you go with all of yours, for me, that's always going to have a 40k nostalgia thing. Is it the best thing to do that's here or there? I mean, I do definitely prefer the the um, the activation, you know, model, 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 model um, system. But because they want to do, because the game, they want to have, you know, the ramboing and cheerleading, you couldn't right. really do that in a, you know, one model, one model, one model, one model system. Um, and I think that's a large part of it. Um, 
but yeah it's I mean the thing is I cool now have you just been playing have you been playing kill em all type of things to learn or did you jump right into the missions um, for me, it's mainly kill them all. <laughs> yeah. But then, in all fairness, those are actually the missions I prefer anyway. <laughs> when I used to, play, oh, okay. when I used to play Malifaux, a lot of the time I'd have a friend over, and it would be, I mean, it would be late night. It'd be like a Friday evening. We'd both been to work, and I'd be like, I can't bother the missions. Shall we just get into this? You know, we'll have we'll have the objective in the middle. You have to go in there and kill each other. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, right. I played Dream, Dreamer, so that did kind of uh, <laughs> give me a bit of a, a, a bit of a leeway there. Okay. Right, you want to start talking about uh, differences between uh, second and third edition? <sighs> I mean, I'm not I'm not familiar with second edition, so. Well, they really expanded the uh, the hacking. And close combat. And, okay. uh, there's also lots of other tweaks, like the, um, uh, they introduced the command tokens, which you have like four of, that wasn't in a second edition. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's extraction points, isn't it? No, command tokens is like, uh, you only got four of them in the game, and that gives you like... Sorry, I was thinking of lieutenant action points. Mm. Yeah, it's like you can, um, for example, if your tag got possessed, you can basically, you know, reset it mm. with one of the tokens, or you can uh, uh, move uh, a unit from one group into another. Yeah. The groups is if you have more than ten miniatures, you have to split them up because you can't have more than ten orders for a single group. Yeah, I and mean, um, Bill, when you had your demo. Of Infinity. Was mm-hmm. it second edition or third? It was second. Second edition, ah. okay. But, oh, okay. I'm just thinking, is it really worth us going over the differences between second and third? So I haven't had, I haven't played any second, I'm not going to play Yeah, second. see, I, and I don't, I, I remember very little about the. Yeah, the, I think uh, that, 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 that's probably like a dozen. There's a dozen of podcasts which are already done there. Exactly. Right. I think if someone wants to, if someone wants to learn the differences, <coughs> they're probably better off actually talking to some real experts. <laughs> not saying you're not and- Andre, but I know I'm I not, certainly are not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm an intermediate. <laughs> I'm not even that. I haven't even played a full game yet. I've just played a couple of small skirmishes. Mm. If you can call them that. Okay. Um. Okay, did we finish with Infinity now? I think I think I'm pretty much done with it. I mean, I think you've raised some good points, Bill. Some very good points about you know what you're saying. And ultimately, we I think if we're going to bring it to a close, I think I can summarise it quite nicely in that it's like a lot of our topics end up being. It comes down to a personal taste thing. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Any more questions about uh, Infinity Bill before we move into something else? No, no. Let's uh, let's move on. Okay. Right, so shall we quickly talk about uh, Dead Zone? Because uh, I know, Bill, you just played a few games of that, and uh, you yep. said you quite enjoy it. I, I do, I do. I, I think there's a lot of things Dead Zone has done really well. Have you bought into it? I have not. Right. However, you got to find... See, this is the one... I, I may not say this always, but this is the one area you have to ask why I haven't bought into mm. it, because that's telling. I haven't bought into it because 
at the time I was looking at putting my money towards other games and was expecting a whole host of Kickstarters to show up all at once. That makes sense. So, of course, with a, and by a whole bunch, I mean between John and I, uh, the ones we've gone into together, and the other games, mm-hmm. I was expecting two complete, uh, in the span of time I was looking at picking up Dead Zone, I was expecting two complete new miniature games and three board games to show up in the same period of time. So to drop the $90 to get the starter box, which is an absolutely fantastic deal for what you get, mm-hmm. at the and then possibly have it shift to the shelf while we're trying to parse through all these other games, made no sense. And then as every week went by, sort of waiting for those Kickstarters to show up, mm-hmm. it became more and more and more tempting, get through Christmas, which is always a little tight on the money, yeah. and then stuff started showing up. Right, so it really was just a timing, a timing thing. Mm. Um, but I have enjoyed all the games I've played. John got it for Christmas, which made made it even easier because mm-hmm. I think Dead Zone is one of those great games where, depending on how many people in your group are playing, you really only need one starter box of Dead Zone yeah. for three players. Yeah. Well, that's not the same reason why I didn't get into it, but. Uh... <laughs> Uh, for me, it was like several things. Um, the biggest one was, of course, the miniatures themselves. Yep. Yeah. Although I do like the design of them, it's just the execution, or more precisely, the material. I hate it. Well, I can just go straight forward and say I don't like Mantic models. <laughs> yeah, that's. I can see that. That's fair. Which um, which ones do you like the designs of, Andre? Well, most of them. I like Dead okay. Zone. I, I I like the um, Rebs and Orcs and uh, Enforcers, like so-so. Uh, I don't like um, uh, those diseased ones. Uh, plague? The Plague? Plague, yeah, I don't like the Plague. Uh, Asterians, uh, kind of okay-ish. Uh, and the, I really... The, the Space Elf ones. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Walkens <laughs> and the Romulans. Yeah, what's funny, so for me, I can't stand the Asterians. I think they look like bad, uh, bad sculpts of short Forge World Eldar Titans. But the I mean, just like that's... everything, everything that could be, I, and I yeah. love the big regular Eldar Titans, but it's like they tried to miniaturize an Eldar Titan, didn't uh, do it well, and then didn't sculpt the copy well. There's only one like Asterian. Like the 90s epic. Oh yeah, it's exactly. It's it's they're horrible. Yeah, but there's only one Asterian in that whole group. Right, right. The rest well, that's true. <laughs> and I do like that idea. I I think the background behind them is kind yeah. of interesting. Mm. I really like Forge Fathers, though. Yeah, and I, I, so so again, for me for me, I I'm not a huge fan of the models overall. Uh, the enforcers are very much. I, they're all ripoffs, right? The the orcs look like orcs. Okay, good. <laughs> The plague. I, I've actually seen some some nicely painted plague that, and, and I get it. Like I, I, when I look at it visually, I get what it is. Yeah. Well, typical biohazard thing. Right, right. Um, you know, the enforcers are clearly marines, mm-hmm. uh, non-IP infringing marines. <laughs> well, in the next Kickstarter, you're gonna have Imperial Guards. Actually, <laughs> even better. That's was actually they're, they're possibly more closer to the arbiters. Yes, actually. Uh, You'd have Desarbites. No, they're more like, they're more like Space Marines, actually, because they... I don't mean in terms of fluff, I mean how they look. Their armor is very mm. similar to the Arbiter armor. I remember having a lot of them in Necromunda. 
Really? We well, I have... We use them as NPCs. I have an Arbiter character, but uh, it looks nothing like the Enforcer, <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I can get it out if you want. <laughs> I'm fine with you not getting it out. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, now, no, what I, I would say is the game itself, the way it plays, one with the cube movement. I think the cube movement is is brilliant. I remember listening I to your podcast, and that I, that sounded really confusing. <laughs> I don't like the cube movement. Really? Mainly How come? Because that kind of this is what stops uh, Dead Zone being a true skirmish level war game. It's kind of borders board game. It's not a true war game. Huh. Why is that necessarily bad thing? Well, also, there's uh, this thing about, even though you have these huge cubes where you you move anywhere in the cube, it still uses uh, something I really hate, its true line of sight. It's kind of true line of sight. It's true line of sight. It's kind of true line of sight, because as long as you are in a square with cover, you get a cover bonus. Uh, but you don't get always a square, a cover in a square from certain sides, because... Well, right, and that's an even better thing, which is... I shouldn't say better. That's one of the other things that differentiates it from true line of sight. If If there is a half a wall in between mm-hmm. your model and my model. However, the cube I'm in has no cover terrain. I don't get cover. Mm-hmm. Even though the half a wall would oh. be providing me cover by true line of sight. You can only gain cover bonuses if there's actually defined cover in your cube. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, still- that's, why I, that's why I say kind of true line of sight. Okay, it's like you don't like this cheerleading thing. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I, and, and I get that, yeah. Do you, do you still need and don't to get me wrong, to... I hate true line of sight. <laughs> do you still need to be able to actually draw a line of sight to the model? You do. Right. Well, <laughs> you do, and then there's other other attacks that you have to draw a line, you have to be able to draw a line of sight to the cube. Wow. Mm. Are they like yeah, so, and that sort of stuff? Exactly. Yeah. So, so those are a lot of fun, because I don't have to be able to see you at all, as long as I can see the top corner of your cube, yeah. which makes... Those pieces are a little bit funky. From a movement standpoint, it, it, I can absolutely see what Andre's saying. It makes it sort of a, a hybrid board game. Mm. I get that. Get that completely. <laughs> I mean, in, it, I mean you did, when you did the Gamers Lounge episode on, um, Dead Zone, which I need to say, <laughs> fantastic episode. For those listening, Thank if you, you haven't, go and listen to it. Very good. As someone who knew nothing about Dead Zone, it was very informative and actually got me looking into it and going, I don't like the models, but <laughs> it made me look into it, which I hadn't done before. It's just, I and like some lot of a model, but just don't like material. The, the, the person you had there, who was kind of like the expert of it, the uh, the henchman, as it were, yep. was, yep. Uh, yep. he described himself as a hybrid between board game and skirmish game. Absolutely. So I think, you know, by, descri- by referring to it as that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing at all, because that's what it's aiming to be. Mm. So it's a question of whether do you want to play a hybrid game or not. A hybrid. And if you don't want to play a game, then obviously it's not going to be a cup of tea. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, and and the interesting thing about not liking the models, this is something John pointed out to me, and it's what I'm looking at with the Asterians. Mm. I like the background for the Asterians, so I'm actually thinking about going and dipping into my uh, cabinet that holds all my 40K. Mm-hmm. And well, taking out some of the 40k Eldar models that I do like. Absolutely. And you, in proxying those in for the different Asterians. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. 
I mean, I was going to say, because I was going to ask, but you know, had you bought into it and this and the other, my next question was going to be, kind of sidetracked and everything else, was, you know, are you going to in there for proxy instead? Yeah, and and that is my plan, is I, as it is, we'll keep playing with the stuff we have. I'll probably proxy in to do some Mysterians, print out the cards, mm-hmm. and uh, or if I can find a place where I can buy the cards, uh, sort of do it that way. Um, it, this, this is... I, I wonder if this is anybody's primary game, right? I have not spoken to anybody, even the it's people my who friends love is, it. My is friends it his primary, primary game? game, really? Yeah, wow. because oh, well, all okay. of the Mantic games are his primary games. Because okay, the guy pretty much never misses a Mantic Kickstarter, because he did <laughs> uh, the original Dreadball, he did the uh, Dreadball Extreme, he did Dead Zone. He did the Dwarf King's Quest, which is sort of like a Hero Quest type mm-hmm. game, dungeon crawl type game. He, uh, yeah, and in those four, he got pretty much everything, and did I mean everything. Mass attacks he split with a friend because he only wanted the mass, and he, he didn't, didn't want the though. resistance. <laughs> yeah, wow. especially since you can play so, them in so Dead Zone. Did huh? you know you yeah, can well, play Martians in Dead Zone? No, yes, they're playable. Yes. Okay, you can play the Martians and you can play the the uh, American military, and the then Russian. there's actually a zombie. Um, there's a set of zombies you can bring in, <laughs> so you can have a zombie apocalypse. Okay. <laughs> so to be fair, yeah. as I understand, Dead Zone is supposed to be the quote unquote board game or skirmish board game, if you will, mm. um, version of Warpath. Warpath would be the full blown army scale game and there's no real middle skirmish game, if I understand correctly, but I'm not up on all of my mantic Well you know. he he gets orcs in the Warpath as well, so Yeah, and also he got the second um Kings of War starter as well, but he only got go for dead in that once. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you know he's pretty. Oh, and the only ones he didn't do was the original uh, Kings of War, the very first Kickstarter they did, and he didn't do Loka or Lokia. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's sort of like a chess game. Uh, he did all Avamantic ones, hmm. and um, yeah, he. I looked at some of his models and some of the like Enforcer uh, Monocycle Woman. You you haven't seen that one, haven't you? No, I haven't. Well, no, yeah, but it's Kickstarter. He got he got this uh, uh, monos- enforcer monocycle with a woman uh, gunner oh. on it, and uh, this was also uh, like a robot, big robot piloted by a goblin for orcs. Those were made not made from the usual material. They were made with this very fine soft resin, which they make warzone miniatures from, and the, the detail of those is far, are really really fine. You get pretty much no bubbles in that thing at all. It's very, very fine de- resin which holds like detail very well. It's like Warzone miniatures. Okay. And I think why couldn't it do them all like that? It's more expensive material, but uh, if if they shift to that, you know, I wouldn't mind paying extra. I would have got into this game most certainly. Even ignore the fact that it's a board game, you know. I probably yeah. wouldn't have to go for a board game because he gets everything already, but they just get my faction and all. <coughs> now, I will say this, and it's in relation to Dead Zone, but it's actually more of a mantic thing. Uh, Richie, you may be interested in the battle zones, the terrain. Uh, 
I'm very interested in that stuff. I hate the battle zones. Really? That's the one because thing I like. <laughs> I like, you know, terrain which is very non, um, uh, what's that word? Symmetric. Non-symmetric. Okay. Symmetric. This is, this is just squares. Boxes, squares, squares, squares. Yep. It's, it's very, it, it creates a very industrialized looking zone. Yeah, but you can make industrialized zone look non-symmetric. You, why you have with this as well? It all depends on how you build it. Not quite. It's still just like even boxes, boxes. <laughs> yeah, whichever I, I, way you go. Where coming from? Where you're going to end up with boxes that have grids on the side and and girders. <laughs> you're going to end up with you know cubes that have you know certain sides ruined and burned out. Um, but it is still very cube based. Mm. Oh, actually, they're gonna change it slightly in the Kickstarter because there will be new bits which will make like curved walls and things. Oh wow! Okay, and, so that... and pipes. There's like pipes going along the floors and things like that, which can be quite. And uh, also like because vermin, they can use like uh, ventilation shafts and stuff to travel. <laughs> oh, okay. I might as well talk about the Kickstarter, which is coming out about in a week or so. <laughs> what Kickstarter? It's a Mantic uh, Dead Zone Kickstarter, which will introduce, like, new new factions, and it's only about a week away as well. Holy crap, how many... What the... Oh, sorry. They all... This is what they do, isn't it? They just go Kickstarter, yes. Kickstarter, Kickstarter. That, that's... I mean, do Mantic do, like, Gen Con or anything like that? Uh, well, they are doing Adepticon this year. Oh, they're doing Salute. <laughs> Because it's interesting, because when you look at how certain other companies work, I mean, Weird being one of the classic ones, it seems they push 90 to 80% of their product design into let's hit Gen Con. Same thing, I think, I know um, Corvus Bay do something very similar, and loads of others I've looked at do very similar tactics, where it's let's focus on the big things, Gen Con being one of them, and they, maybe one or two other things throughout the year, but let's push onto this. It's Do, I mean... Do Mantic do something similar, or do they simply go Kickstarter, 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 and that's how they make the revenue? I think they go Kickstarter, 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 because... it appears to be, from, from my point of view, which, I, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure what to think about that, that's a different match altogether. <laughs> Let's well, face it, I don't yeah, know they released anything new without the Kickstarter for a very long time, so... Yeah, I was going to say, how, um, how different is that from, say, Cool Mini or Not, though, who also... Has made a business out of Indeed. going to Kickstarter. Indeed. No, so I just did a quick search. It does look like Mantic does show up at Gen Con. Uh, they go to Salute. They're going to Adepticon this year. And ha well, there's a tournament at Adepticon, but I'm pretty sure I've heard Ronnie repeatedly at Adepticon. So they do attend conventions in both the U.S. and in Europe. Mm. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't change the fact that they are uh, very heavy. Into Kickstarter. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Is I mean, if if, <laughs> if that's your thing, well, it it depends on how you view Kickstarter. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, one of the things I, mean, I remember a while ago, I did a blog post about you know where you know musing over the future of the industry and this sort of thing. And one of the, the one of the things I gave Mantic a lot of credit for is they are what you see is what you get. Mm. Very much, you know, they don't hide behind pretenses. You know, right and like one of, one of the things that you know in my like in my opinion I think their models 
they kind of like a lot of people I know for example they'll buy the Warhammer ripoff essentially um, versions of their models to use instead of GW ones because they're cheaper I think they look cheaper as well but that's actually thing. You're, you're, one you're, of, you're getting what you're buying one of the reasons my friend likes Mantic so much is because you know the miniatures themselves are really cheap because I show him like uh, Guild Ball and one of the reasons he didn't go for Guild Ball he, which he kind of liked that he said uh, first of all he was already getting few kickstarters mainly the uh, Dwarfkin's uh, quest and the uh, and Dreadball Extreme mm-hmm. at, at the same time, so that's why he didn't get it. But the other reason was the miniatures are so expensive. You know, you know after Mantic miniatures, you know, obviously killed and that's the thing. Is it, is they, they are they are WYSIWYG totally, and that's not necessarily a bad thing if that's what you want to go for. Right. Yeah. You know, personally, I'm not a big fan of the it looks cheaper, so therefore it is cheaper. I'd rather something looks nicer. I, w- I don't want to spend my money. On you know you know ten pounds versus twenty pounds, I'd you know I'd feel like I wasted the ten pounds even if you know for something cheaper. So I'd be like, ooh, it looks like well, in my thing, for my friend, taste and this that and the other. But you for know, my friend, it's the more the better. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. They don't. I feel as a company, they don't kind of pretend to be anything more than that. You know, and maybe, maybe I, I mean, I don't know because I haven't played any of their games, but maybe part of it as well is maybe their focus is more on rules or something. I don't know. But well, mm. uh, so this is purely opinion. Uh, anyway, purely so my opinion. I, I'm not even going to claim. Right, but um, I, I mean, I think Mantic has really made their place in the industry by responding to the demand. Uh, well, to the Games Workshop demand. Mm. They provide cheaper alternatives to Games Workshop by a million models. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, there's a tremendous amount of success in that that Manta capitalized on. Now again, my opinion, not saying they're, I, I mean, I enjoy Dead Zone, so not saying their games are bad, not saying that's all they are. Um, but I have heard the comment, you know, somebody asked, somebody made the comment to me that you don't really see a lot of Dead Zone tournaments around, but you do see, or not Dead Zone, Mantic tournaments around, but you do see a lot of Mantic models mm-hmm. at GW tournaments. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, so anyway, that Kickstarter, uh, it'll be like, uh, well, there's three new factions already known which are gonna be there. One is going to be the Pathfinders, which is going, is basically cooperation, but not, uh, not enforcers. It's gonna be like, you know, in the uh, Warpath you have like basics, Imperial Guard type cooperation. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, they already released it in Warpath, but now they're going to be in Dead Zone. The Pathfinders, which is basically uh cooperation, but uh, more like masses rather than the very elite. So basically, like, if uh, if uh, Enforcers are Space Marines, then the Pathfinders yeah, and yeah, Imperial yeah, Guard. Yeah, yeah. Then there's uh Vermin, which is the Space Skaven. Yeah. Yeah, Sci-Fi's Redman. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're gonna release, like, a, finally release vehicles for that thing, because they existed in Warpath as well. And, uh, yeah. So, Redman. And the third one is, I haven't actually seen any concept art for that, but that's what they were originally playing, and it is, uh, Zor. Zor are like insect men. Oh, they were previously... Um, they were in Dreadball, weren't they? Dread, not, yeah. Yes, yes, I have a... I have a Zor Dreadball team. I got it just because, you know, a friend of mine does it. I want to maybe play some mm. games my friend plays. Yeah, and yeah, I got the Zor team. 
And they're sort of like uh, big humanoid insects. Yeah. But in this game, they'll actually have weapons and stuff because, you know, in Dreadball, it's just, it's a fantasy, well, sci-fi football game. Mm. Yeah. So, in Mantic, so, are all the, let's just say, sci-fi games, are they in the same universe? I can't hear you. I think they are. I think, I think, um, Andre, the sci-fi games in Mantic, are they in the same universe? Yeah. Also, you think, yeah, that's quite clever. That's quite good. Although the vermin and Zor in Dreadball are not actually real, they're just genetically engineered things which are supposed to look like uh, vermin and Zor because they're actually enemies. You, there's no way you you actually have play real vermin in that game. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Let's get back on topic. What were we talking about? <laughs> I've, I've right, so well, I, I think I think we've kind of gone uh, covered most of most of Dead Zone, haven't we? I think so. Yep. Okay, a uh, little bit about uh, uh, Guild Ball. So you you really heavily into it, are you, Bill? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> That's one way. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm hoping to get some at salute. And maybe get an interview of them because I got a camcorder for Christmas. So, <clears throat> so there was a very I, I I would love to hear your response after getting in and getting a demo. And I say that because I read of, I, they were they've been doing demo weekends out at Element Games, and uh, uh-huh. one of the recent comments that got repeated retweeted on Twitter was uh, "Great game." Two minutes to uh, two minutes to teach. Within five minutes, new players are playing. Um, now, yeah. <laughs> I I would agree with that. It's the basics are definitely very simple, but this is uh, I think going to be very much like it, it. For me, it scratches that same mental itch that Malifaux did. The combos and looking at how the game plays and how everything sort of works together is really where the intricacy of the game mm-hmm. comes up. You know, what attracts me in this game so much is several things. First of all, even though it's a sport games, before, normally sport games are more like board games than miniature games. This is a true skirmish level game, even though it's a sport. But yes, it is. And uh, also, the miniatures themselves, they don't really look like fantasy football miniatures. So, f- funny enough, Phil, um, my co-host on Guild Ball Tonight, there's a plug, um, <laughs> go listen to Guild Ball Tonight. Because they need more listeners. We need I more do. listeners. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, Phil on Guild Ball Tonight made the same comment that he, coming from a Blood Bowl and Sports Ball background, actually had some challenges with the fact that, you know, why would this guy be running down the field with a sword? Or why does this look like a fantasy combat miniature instead of a sports miniature? I personally love it and, Mm. you know, there's a... I I don't know. When I look at certain teams, like if I look at the fishermen, yes, several of the fishermen have spears, but they're fishing spears or whaling spears and they have tridents, they have nets. It's not, you know... It all still, I think they've done a really good job of fitting everything into what the different teams fulfill. And the place where you see most of the swords or knives or whatnot are in the Union, who, yeah, okay, listen, I mean, 
I don't know how much you guys have read about American unions out there, and I'm not going to say anything bad, but go do some reading. <laughs> I think it means more like trade union. Yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> organized labor. <laughs> if anything, if, if the American unions are anything like the British unions, I think uh, would they not have to have lots of back protection? Uh, Mm, yeah, I, I bats and you know knives. And... No, 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 back protection. <laughs> oh, if, back. If, if anything like British unions, they're too busy using the swords and their own members. Yeah, well, there is uh, that. Uh, so, a bit of political topic there. Yeah, also, the very <laughs> interesting thing about this game is the they're going to make another another skirmish level game to use with these miniatures because it won't be sport. It'll be more like. Min- uh, skirmish level game with missions and all using same miniatures, so I think that is great. And I have heard that, although I am, you know, waiting for this game to come out first. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, on the good side, we should be uh, uh, based on the latest updates. It looks like I'll be uh, models will be shipping within three weeks of when we're recording now. So, actually, Bill, I wanted to ask you about the terrain. I mean, what kind of terrain can you get in this game? So you can get anything. However, and and this is the thing that got me when I finally sat down and played the first demo game of this. This game plays as complex as Malifaux 1st Edition did Mm -hmm. with zero terrain on the table. Uh And then when you add terrain, it actually ups... And, and the rules have been simplified, so when I say it ups the complexity, it ups the complexity, but not in a makes it more complicated to play. The rules in dealing with terrain are very simple, but what you end up having is, depending on how you put the terrain in and how dense that terrain is, it it changes the play field drastically. Well, yes. I heard you can't ricochet ball of uh, walls anymore, but... <laughs> Not anymore. They took that out going from beta to regular, but even with that, so if you think about That's the probably that... for the better, but that you can make... <laughs> <It> uh, <is. laughs> because terrain is not just about walls, and, you know, what you have something really complicated where you don't know how it will, you know, ricochet off it, or if it will get through it even. <laughs> yeah, they played with a bunch of rules around that, but, you know, one of the things that, that you look at... um Terrain to be able to stop the ball, terrain that won't stop the ball, but will speed up or slow down the players as they run across it. Can but you they keep... think sort of at the higher level. Being able to kick a ball high over a building... Can you do that? And you can. So uh-huh. being able to send it over a building and then having to reposition completely around that building or have your other team members waiting on that side, uh, being able to do blind kicks and hope the scatter works out, those are going to make much more cinematic moments. Mm. Because I was thinking, because at the moment, uh, the building are ju- buildings are just like obstacles, really, aren't they? Yeah, I think you in, in at that point you just fall. Yes, they're all obstacles, but you just fall back to you know, the kick high rule. And they still reference that where it's a kick that can't be intercepted. But um, what about if you have like more complicated things like um walkways or possibly uneven terrain where you have higher areas, lower areas? So you so, on the second level kick the ball down to a teammate below. Could you well, do that? that? 
Absolutely, because there's there's not going to be any difference for when you kick the ball, you pick a landing spot and then scatter from that landing spot. Hmm. That's interesting because I'm already thinking of like really interesting but really complicated terrain. So like elevation, so you don't actually have to climb, but there's elevated areas which are higher and lower, so you can get up there without difficulty, but you don't see what behind it at the same time. And that's for for a visual, there was a great early discussion with these guys. I want to say it was during their Kickstarter, where they talked about the possibility or the vision of being able to play a game of Guild Ball where you may have to handle and pass the ball along walkways above the street of a city. Yeah. So to be able to play across rooftops and walkways as well as down in the streets themselves. Um, you know, that would take, there would be a little bit of house ruling you'd have to do with that, but not a lot. And I think it would be fairly simple. There is the concept in the game of this high kick, this, this non-interceptable kick, which is the same concept oh. they use for a goal kick, right? When the crowd throws the ball back in after a goal, um, it is a kick that can't be intercepted. So I'm, I'm really getting more and more interested in this with every, with every episode of Guild Ball tonight and after this as well. Yeah. So I, I have to go back and I, my biggest recommendation, you know, Phil, my co-host has been talking about playing with a couple of walls and in, in light terrain, that that's enough to add some additional complexity to the game. But, you know, learning the game, there is enough complexity that you could play several games that are, without ever setting terrain on the table and really engage in that complexity of what's, what skills and abilities play off what other skills and abilities, how do these different models mix together, and get that full experience and then start adding terrain. But for me, it's all about the at- visual atmosphere, really. Yes. Like, I, I'm, I'm a competitive painter <laughs> and modeler. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of these models will, will scratch that itch too. But yeah, I agree. Having a great, having a full blown table with, um, you know, with terrain on there. Medieval, is, medieval oh, like, uh, derelict medieval area, you know, with ruined buildings and things. Yep. Where you can actually get inside buildings. Warehouses um, and stuff. Well, you could. You just declare them as, as ruins and go ahead in. Yeah, right. <laughs> there'll be no roof or anything, but you know, like, so one of the keys here, they don't, they don't over define the terrain, right? Um, the, the definitions of terrain really are what's, it's, it's all around what's gonna stop the ball and what's gonna change movement for the players. I mentioned having a board of terrain with same level of detail as I use on my bases. <laughs> well, Andre, I look forward to seeing that board in like 2027. <laughs> oh no! Okay, you got your point, but I don't think it's going to be that far because if I get around, I can uh, I can do it in a few months, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I I mean they do you know they provide what open ground, rough ground, uh, fast ground, which is fun. Uh, it actually speeds you up, and then they and then you define cover obstructions. And uh, what is the size of the pitch or whatever? Three by three. Three by three, same as Malifaux. Mm. Yep. Mm. Actually, uh, I had a really funny conversation which uh, Justin Gibbs, what uh, on one of the podcasts, he was talking about, you know, 
elevated terrain in uh, in Malifaux, and people are asking him about uh, you know the line of the elevation. How do you measure like distances? Do you just do it top down, or are you actually measure diagonally? And he said it was just from top down. And he also said if he was going to do a third edition of Malifaux, he would completely get rid of the elevation. You couldn't get on top of buildings. They were just for, like, um, just as obstacles. That's it. Yeah, I think I heard that uh, interview. That is so odd. <laughs> he also was worried that, you know, people will come with pitchforks, and I would love to see that happen. But <laughs> <laughs> right. Um Okay, so have we done with Guild Ball for now? I think so. Right, now, the game design is actually what makes a good game. Uh, have we actually lost something, you know, since the early really fun days of miniature wargaming? Do you now, ever get that feeling, Bill? Is, uh, yeah, and is this, I, I'm wondering, is this also a mix with one of the other things we talked about offline, which is the um, dealing with campaigns and yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's the all topic, of that. Yeah. Okay, so help me out, because because yeah. do I think something has been lost since since early days of gaming? My first miniature game, I I love miniature games. Mm-hmm. My first miniature game was 40k. So I would say everything that I've lost is good. I lost GW. <laughs> oh. And that everything else has been a gain. However, right, when you talk about game design, I, I, I don't know. Like even when I put my mind towards overall game design and testing, I think I've seen more of a progression in how games are designed. You know, games are trending towards a skirmish game, which is something I prefer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trending towards That's action point I versus really like as well. um, all, all for one. Yeah, all for one activation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're tending towards a bit more complexity and a bit more um, overlapping abilities, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, multiple models boosting each other instead of... Um, you know, I have five wound markers as my unit and one really cool guy. Yeah. Um, and they're trending away from buckets of dice. Even the games that are still dice games are trending away from buckets of dice. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, well, right. So all of that, I would say, there's nothing really lost there. I don't, I don't miss any of that. Well, I certainly. Well, my first game was Warhammer Fantasy, and uh, to be honest, I didn't miss that much either. But, you know, what? when I really, really got into miniature games is when Mordheim came out. I absolutely loved Mordheim. Okay. I, I did the Macromanda as well, but I didn't get into it as much as, I, as Mordheim. And the um, thing is, there was like, it seems like there was a more fan factor in there. The games became much more serious, kind of. It's like, um, because... It seems like they're sacrificing a lot of fun things for the sake of, like, balance. But the trouble is, they, they don't always get the balance right anyway, regardless. Well, if I can just add to that as well. Yeah, go on. Um, I kind of started with 40k. I mean, technically there was like some D&D before that and that sort of stuff. Um, and I got in, I didn't do more time, but I did do Necromunda, and I did a lot of Gorkamorka. And, um, 
again, campaign-focused games. And something just occurred to me that all three of these things were around... Well, okay, maybe not so much with more time, but in the case of um, Necromunda and Gorkamorka, we were looking at 2nd edition 40k. Yeah. Then, I mean, and 2nd edition 40k was around for ages... Mm. It was around. I mean, the enti- I, I stopped playing when they released um, third edition 40k. Same here. And I've. I mean, I'm. I'm looking at like four, five, maybe even six years of one edition. So when was the last time here, we saw that? Here's a. Here's <laughs> right. So you guys are talking about getting in in the late 90s. Yes. Mid 90s. Mid 90s. Early so, 90s. Okay, so there's a great difference for you. While we are all of similar age, I did not start getting into games, uh, into miniature games, yep. until 2003. Mm. Mm. And then we're looking okay. at a very different landscape. Right, so we're looking at the end, uh, 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. So I'm looking at the end of third edition going into fourth of 40k. Did we have things like War Machine, that sort of stuff by then? Yes. Um, yeah, but it, I think it was just launching at that point, right? That's interesting. I think it's already launched for a while. Yeah, I'm gonna take a look at when did when did they come out? It's around 2000. Okay. So yes, and we're looking at what confrontation and this sort of stuff. It was confrontation <laughs> came same time. War Machine, War Machine Prime, 2003. Oh. Yeah. So we're looking so you're, at an explosion of, of, of games, in a way, in the early noughties that were not by Games Workshop. Mm. Right, right. And, and again, I started with 40K mm. and then got involved with Warhammer Fantasy. Played that for years as the primary game until Malifaux came along. Mm. So really, I came, I came into miniature gaming very late. Now, I'm very, being very specific about miniature gaming because you mentioned D&D. D&D was... I played D&D since I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking back into, you know, late 80s, yeah. uh, mid, late, late 80s to mid 90s. You'll probably and remember what I started then. I was with the, uh, the black, the black, black box with the red dragon. Yep. Yeah. I don't uh, know, I can't remember what edition that was, but that's, that's what I started with. So, so I played a, yeah, that was the basic and then there was advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which yeah. just the hardcovered books. I played with a lot of that. However, I never played with miniatures. Really? Wow. We never, Same here. It's theater of the mind. There was never miniatures involved. Played, um, in fact, I play tested Shadowrun, the original oh. Shadowrun, wow. all theater of the mind. Mm. Now, the thing is, uh, I think it was fourth edition of uh, D&D that when they really started using miniatures really heavily, and that's when I really... quit it completely, <laughs> because uh, at this point, uh, you know, the, instead of measuring distances, it says how many squares forward it goes, and it's like, what? <laughs> What's funny is, I always knew groups that used miniatures to do facing and things like that, mm-hmm. but they were never the groups that I played in. Mm-hmm. So it was a real departure, and I think that's interesting when we talk about campaigns, there was a real departure in the style <laughs> of my gaming when I moved to miniature games. Mm. Uh, actually, the thing is, I didn't really play much role-playing, but I bought a lot of books and I read them like other people read novels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started D&D fairly early, 
well, uh, when was it? Uh, really early 90s. And um, But the thing is, what attracted me most about it was the art. Okay. Yeah, the art of D&D. And the, in the beginning, I was like... Uh, looking at these products with really big open eyes, you know, like, what the heck is that? How are you supposed to play it? I, I had no group. I had no idea what to do with it. And, you know, I said, well, wouldn't the Ivy be able to play it? I was scared to buy it because I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it's like I didn't know what you're supposed to buy first, like the main rule book. I was just looking at Adventures and so forth. Right. Yeah, and um, later I uh, bought the Player's Handbook. It was... Um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition, uh, kind of uh, learned it, you know, started reading the books and monster manuals and all. Uh, then uh, late, I mean mid nineties, when I went to college, I met my friend Gary, which you know, Richie, you saw him in Leisure Games, okay. and uh, he introduced me to White Wolf. Mm-hmm. Werewolf the Apocalypse mainly And yeah we played that quite a bit And uh, I really enjoyed that But then I showed him Dungeons and Dragons Now Bill when did you start it Into D&D which edition was it Oh like I said I played both Sort of the basic sets So You started before Before third edition Oh long before So so I played original Whatever it was, advanced Dungeons and Dragons, mm, yeah. AD and D. So where, imagine where, after White Wolf, I tried to introduce my friend to the concept of to hit armor class zero. Imagine how that went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, they fixed it in third edition, but you remember, Bill, you remember what to hit armor class zero oh, is? Absolutely. Thacko was, I mean, we had sharks, we had, I, yeah. Everyone knew the Thacko score. Oh yeah, god. Absolutely. <laughs> Because that, did... that was that that was the basic, wasn't it? As long as you knew your thacker, you could work at everything else. Yep. Yes, but why wouldn't you just like add the you know like base attack bonus and things instead of like the hook going in the middle because the armor went from z- from plus ten from no armor to minus ten the the most powerful magical armor. <laughs> what dragons have? But... What I find interesting is you talk, you're talking about how you've got the you know um, the use of miniature games. D and D is a miniature game and as a theater of the mind game. And I'm curious, Bill, when you played it as a theater of the mind game, how much um, direct? Oh, what's the word to put in this? How separated were your players from the characters? Okay, so I'm I'm not sure. Are you asking how many people you know committed suicide because their character died? <laughs> like, um, cause, so I did a lot of White Wolf as well when I was younger. I started uh, my first role play experience was D and D with miniatures, and we and I've done it since um, more recently. And in those cases, we're very much we are controlling these avatars as models, and they're just that. And there was no uh, interaction. It was just this is the action my model is going to do. Um, other times, um, then in my late teens, did a lot of White Wolf, um, as in so much yep. White Wolf it was scary. And even our you know non LARP games. Cause I mean, we, I, I, I went to a couple of sessions at this London place that was completely LARP all the way. Um, but did a couple of non LARP, but even that still had, you know, um, I mean, I GM'd a lot of games and, um, how I like to do it, whether being theatre of the mind was, you know, um, so for example, a player would say, well, I'm going to try and convince you to let me through this door. And I'd say, okay, then do it. You know, don't just roll a dice, 
do it. <laughs> and if you can't do it with your actual words, you can't do it. And so, so, people, so people got very, you know, they were actually, they were their characters. They weren't just saying my character is going to do this. They did it per se, but it wasn't laughing. It's still sitting on a table. Yeah, we we weren't quite that far in because uh, a lot of the time, I mean, this goes all the way back into high school. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, the other players, and even as I played, um, and I ended up being the G, you know, the GM, DM a lot. Um, they weren't playing characters that were good representations of them. Mm-hmm. So there was a certain amount of, there's going to be clues and things like that. There's going to be these, these social interactions. There's things that people are going to have to figure out. Um, we, I, I rarely, if ever played, um, competitively, if you will, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of early role playing, other groups that I've heard, it, it very much was, it's the DM against the players and the players against the DM. Yeah, yeah. Most of the games I was in, it was collaborative storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, but with collaborative storytelling, there is that, there is that want to, um, figure out as the, as the characters, your character's growing, you're kind of taking it through this arc, but you, you don't, you don't know everything that's going to be happening. And then mm-hmm. the DM is really setting an overarching plot, but then adapting based on what the players do. And we always gave out experience for surprising the DM for, you know, for things like that. You know, sometimes it's completely unforeseen. That said, to be able to say, okay, convince me, a lot of times, you may we may start down that road, and the person playing the character, the player would go, "Hey, listen, my charisma is seventeen, <laughs> and my personal charisma is clearly not a seventeen. So, at what point can I just make a roll here?" <laughs> oh, Richie, I meant yeah. to ask you because, like, particularly in White Wolf, yeah. when you have uh, social attributes, the whole like you know three of them, and mm-hmm. um, presumably you have a player who's very good at social interaction and actually making up these things mm-hmm. and basically he, someone who wouldn't spend any points on social attributes mm-hmm. and then you have uh, like just your typical player who's not very good at these things who just wants you know to go kill stuff yeah. and he actually spends a lot of points on social attributes you know why spend point in social attributes if you're just gonna, you know, have to explain things yourself and it wouldn't matter, you know, what your traits are? It, it was, it wasn't as straightforward as that, but it was, it, we used the traits more as a benchmark of what you can sort of do. So in the case of, like I said, your, you know, your charisma is, like I said, your, your real charisma versus your, your character charisma. So right. therefore we would say, okay, well, argue it, but we would give them more leeway if they happened to have a higher stat. And right. so, I mean, likewise, I mean, you had, I mean, things like, you know, I mean, I played a hell of a lot of vampire, and in that a large part of it was to do with, um, you know, like appearance and attractiveness and this sort of stuff. Now, obviously, if, you know, I'm playing the GM, and I've got a bouncer, and a person who's playing a, like, a male or a female, and the male or female wants to make out with the bouncer, I'm not gonna have him or her come across and try and kiss me. <laughs> You know, yeah, that's a whole other line of role playing. <laughs> exactly, and that, <laughs> and that was something we never wanted to touch. Oh, so obviously, certain things. It was a case of like, you know, you got the stats for it. Let's just, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but in certain, certain but it, so it, it was more of a benchmark. And actually, uh, one of the rules of LARP live action role playing is there's no touching, not yes, even shaking hands. Absolutely. For that very reason, and I never actually played LARP. It was always like pen and paper. Mm. <laughs> And most of the time when, we, when I was GMing, I actually played without dice. 
I had no dice at all. Oh, and my ruling was basically, um, when a person said what they wanted to do, if doing it forwarded the storyline, it happened. If it's neg- if it was ne- negative to the storyline, it didn't happen. And if it didn't really matter, whichever was the most fun. Right. Mm. <laughs> what about players who just want to, you know, kill monsters and take their stuff? My my group didn't really have that, so oh, I, was, okay. I was fortunate in that way. So we had, I had, we had one person that who did, but we very quickly showed him that actually, if he gets involved into it more, we gave him a um, a detective role type of thing. Mm. And um, very quickly, he got really into that. He was like a oh, um, okay. Columbo type character. Yeah, see, we had groups like that over time. Um, what's I, I think one of the best stories of that we uh, a friend of mine actually locally once I moved to DC. So this was after I was in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine and I, who were both in a role playing group, had come across a different group on one of the message boards, drove out to join one of their games, and we had gone through two or three. I had been out to two or three of their games. And was talking about the fact that their style of play, which was very much miniatures, map, very combat-centric, mm-hmm. not a lot of social interaction, not as much, um, talking about how different that was. And, you know, my buddy Luke was like, oh, well, let me come out and check that out, because the other group he was in was very heavily, um, you know, not a lot of social interaction, really heavy into the combat. Mm. And it got really bad, because we both showed up, we start playing in the, you know, we're going through playing in this game. He's got the brand new player, and there was an ability in one of the editions of D&D called Cleave, where <laughs> if you swung your sword and killed the enemy, you could roll to swing on the next enemy. Mm-hmm. And um, we were in a combat, and he swung and he rolled a one, a critical fail, and the DM was like, well, now you have to roll to see who's near you to see who you hit. <laughs> and he rolls, and it comes up as me, the guy that brings him into the game, and he rolls his damage and kills my character. Yeah. And everybody at the table's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And without missing a beat, Luke goes, so I get my cleave, right? <laughs> <laughs> And the whole table just sort of stopped. He's like, it's in the rules. It's a combat. I get to cleave after killing Bill, right? (laughs) So so that was probably the last time. That was the last game we both went to there, and we just went back to our normal storytelling. uh, Uh, Anyway, we kind of deviated into role-playing, but we will not talk more about miniatures. I think it's important, though, because this is the thing. Yeah. We're we're talking right now. We're sharing these stories about these games we've played, and Mm. throughout all of this... Our stories, our characters. Okay. And this is what I'm looking at. Uh. Campaign games, very often, I, I, I share stories with the people I played my campaign games with mm. in the past, and it was our characters going through our stories. I look back at my games of, say, Malifaux, fantastic mm-hmm. games, I loved playing them, but they were never my characters, they were never my uh. stories. Understood. So, and, and I will add on to that, because I, is that what you're looking for in your miniature games? I think so. So for me, it's not. Mm. If that's what I wanted was to continue telling a story about my character and my story or telling my collaboratively telling a story, I would go back to role playing regularly. Mm. Right? I look for, I look for, uh, I look for, I look for something different, but miniature gaming specifically fills a different niche Mm. in my brain for me. As opposed to role playing, 
it, it just hits a different, you know, a different type of gaming, yeah. a different type of, of hobby activity. Mm. And I think that's important when we talk about campaigns. Mm. Absolutely. Because the campaigns kind of makes that, really. Well, it can and it can't, right? The idea of uh, of playing a campaign that changes a, a model in a game, <laughs> miniature in a in a miniature war game, mm-hmm. or a tabletop a, a tabletop skirmish game, going through and adding some abilities, doing some short run things along those lines, mm-hmm. I think that's a kind of a cool idea, and you keep it short run. But there's going to be certain things, you know, I don't want to maintain a character sheet. One of the things, there's this board game myth that, that I've been playing lately. And I think the most annoying part about that game to me is that there's a character sheet to keep of this long list of equipment that builds over time and all this other stuff. Now, thank God, John, who I play the game with, fills out that sheet for me at the end of every game. And keeps it. But I'm, I don't want to build a character. I want to have something that goes for a set period of time, maybe maybe tells a story... Mm. But it's a much more encapsulated story than what I would want out of a role-playing game where I have a character and I'm building this, you know. Different miniature games had, like, different means of dealing with it, really. Mm -hmm. Because, first of all, there's this thing called realism. Exactly how much of it do you want in a game? Like, there was this... Actually, game... There's a lot of things which are found in other games, like board games and uh, card games and possibly even video games, which kind of translate into this sort of thing, because a lot of video games, like, let's say, even Fallout, it's all about numbers, really, so it can... And uh, let's take, like, there was a hockey game, there was big dialogue with the video games about ice hockey, where the people talking about, you know, the game's becoming a bit too realistic... And, you know, is realism makes it more fun? Well, not necessarily, if you're exactly doing it like in a, in a game. For example, if I was going to design a sports board game or miniature game, mm-hmm. then I probably wouldn't take existing sport. I would rather make my own. I would create a fun mechanic which and make sport out of it rather than do exact simulation of something well, which might or might not be fun. Let's be honest. Is there, there's a reason why there's lots of miniature board, ga- miniature sports games that are based on American football but don't actually use American football rules. Mm. Right. Yeah. Because you don't want to keep stopping and starting that much. <laughs> <clears throat> like I remember with these hockey games, uh, someone um, uh, they kind of made them realistic at certain point because. To a certain point, hockey games, the best way to score was doing something called one-timer. You know, everyone know what it is? Sounds familiar. It's basically when you do, like, really quick pass, like, near the gates, and then someone hits it without actually taking control of a ball, like, straight swing. Mm-hmm. Now, in the real hockey, the very you very rarely saw that anyone score a goal in that way. That's because these strikes are very inaccurate. Yeah. But in video games, that was like the best way of scoring, <laughs> which again makes it, uh, yeah, so real, but then again, there are some other extremes, like then, uh, like certain missions in Malifaux, like why is getting a message to your opponent's leader is so important that, you know, you want to sacrifice the whole band for it, including your captain, like, 
Well, well, that's fair, but at the same time, I I loved story encounters, and I liked writing up story encounters, mm-hmm. but they were very encapsulated, and you know there was a, I think there was a certain art to writing story encounters, so that it didn't it's so that it didn't matter as much who was facing who, and if you had effects that followed on, the effects were not necessarily tacked to specific models. You know, so you have a story, you have the story that's building, you may even have a story that matters, which I think, I, I don't know how much they're doing on their new campaign system, but, you know, if I, if I go back to the old, everything I've heard about the old Necromunda and Mordheim, you had these effects that sort of stacked and yeah. built over time, right? So you may have that, but I think there's something to be said for closed, looped, encapsulated stories, right? Mm-hmm. You go through, you, you build up these miniature models, not so much from a role-playing standpoint, but build up these miniature models, add a couple effects, complete that story, and then start the next one. Yeah. Actually, when I was playing Necromunda in Mordheim, this was not what this was about for me. For me, it was all about growth. It wasn't about winning. It's about maximizing your growth. That was my soul. Okay. And, for example, there was the... I actually loved taking on opponents which were, had much stronger bands than me. Because that gave me the opportunity to uh, improve much quicker. Because you had this uh, risk-reward thing where if you take on someone much more powerful, your experience gains will be that much higher. Now let me ask you this, because I, I don't know. How many abilities or how many things could a Necromunda or a Mordheim model do? Quite a bit. Yeah. Was it? So they weren't just an equation of the model coming out of, say, you know, a squad, a a Warhammer or a 40K squad. Um, No, no, it wasn't squad. There were individual miniatures. There were individuals. Mordheim is a skirmish level game, so is Necromunda. I'm with you, but I guess what I'm asking is a, a, a dwarf slayer yeah. In Mordheim. Could do more than just attack with his axe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Move and, and move. Right? In the beginning, this was very little you can do. But then you build the characters up to become like Swiss Army Knife. There's so many things they can do. It's like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, for example, um, they, uh, the Troll Slayers has very unique parrying ability, which, well, made them very hard to hit, even though they had no armor. Uh, let's see if I can find something. Oh, I'm looking to see if I can... Because I'm wondering if that sort of goes towards the the idea, you know, you brought up before, Andre, about is are things... Is the, is the urge towards balance kind of too, uh, too heavy right now? I think a lot of the current games, if we look at a, a Malifaux, an Infinity, a, a Guild Ball, a, um, a Dead Zone, you're, you have these games which have tacked two, three, four abilities onto each individual model. Mm-hmm. Balance becomes more important there because if you increase that to four, five, six abilities on each model, the person that gets far enough ahead can make a new player or the person that's behind feel like it's a completely unwinnable situation. And while there are some people who enjoy going into a situation that is quote-unquote unwinnable to see what they can do, I think the majority of players 
want to at least feel like they have a chance. Not so much a chance. They want a fair chance to win. Okay, can I just quickly say something? It's because uh, the new games are kind of uh, catered toward um, tournaments. Because back then we played differently. Like, for example, like I already said, I really loved um, fighting uh, warbands, which were more powerful than mine, because uh, I would get bigger experience for like playing this kind of games and actually there was a certain way you could take on your opponent because winning wasn't the most important it's okay if you lose because he could have won but he would be in much worse situation with me in the end of a game okay. <laughs> like for example what I used to do is because you could always you know bottle out as they call it in mm-hmm. Necromanda or, or just leave it at one point in more time you know right you take, you voluntarily forfeit the game. So you lost the game, but in the end, I, you, I would quit the game after I inflict a lot of casualties on my opponent. And in the, in the end, the only thing he got out of winning the game is extra weird stone, which was like currency thing. And he didn't get much experience because I was my weaker band than him. And I like, and in the end, he ended up with a lot of injuries. Not much experience, not well, not little bit more money than me. <laughs> so I wonder. And in the next now, game, you would say, hmm? would your yeah. view have been different if one, you couldn't just stop the game after inflicting the injuries, but you actually had to disengage and get off the board? And two, if there was the possibility that once you drop below a certain level in that game, you couldn't you couldn't continue to play in the campaign. Um. I never got to the point... You could get to the so low what you couldn't play in a campaign anymore, but it never happened to me. You have to consistently do really bad. Okay. One thing. Or didn't get any benefit out of it, right? So at the end of the game, you said he only benefited with one more warp stone, but you got some experience and whatnot. What if when you lost, you actually netted zero? You you took your injuries, you lost whoever it is that you lost, but the net result was zero. You don't actually get to get any benefit out of a game you lose. I wouldn't enjoy that. Right. And I think that's one of the things we look at now. The other side, and this would, again, completely guessing here. However, I think one of the things that's changed over years of gaming, Mm -hmm. not so much since I've been playing, but definitely since you guys have, is the difference between consistently playing with the same two or three people in long stories versus I'm going to go out to the store or the club and try to get my one game this week, and I may not play that person again for the next three months. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I when I, when I, when I was doing it as, you know, a late teenager, early adult, there, you know, you didn't really have... The only, the only tournaments, really, that was that I knew of were things like Games Day and that sort of stuff. And I think one of the main reasons for that is the Internet. Thanks to okay. social media and, you know, it means, you know, and podcasts and all this sort of stuff. The moment something's organized, if you happen to have the least bit of interest in that field, you know about it. You know, mm. so I could do it out of my own, out of, the, you know, my back garden. You know, proud and podcast, mention it, say, you know, you, ask you for a shout out of this tournament on, yep. on Gamers Lounge, and then however many hundreds of people or whatever know, know about this event's going to happen. One listener, one listener. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen back in the day. So, you know, what you had was your local area, which in my case consisted of about six people, and that was it. 
And, and then you may go even worse where you have your local area of six people, but really it's you and your buddy that got together all the time. Which is pretty much what happens right. in my case. The truth so, is, all I care about is my local area. <laughs> like, this is why I'm having problems at the moment, because our fragile Malifaux community in leisure games didn't survive the transition to the next edition. <laughs> so I haven't played Malifaux for a very, very long time. Yep. Yep. And um, the club, the, what the, the was called, the Titans, because mm. I don't think they're doing Malifaux no, at no. the moment yep. either. From what On I the other, in North London, there just is no Malifaux anymore. Yeah. On the other hand, there's big resurgence of Malifaux in Dark Sphere. There's a huge community there, but it's really far from me. It's going to take me like two and a half hour yeah, travel. That's South London, isn't so, it? So, so not to derail us, I'm, I'm curious, and I know. The UK seems to be doing amazing in in terms of Malifaux, but what is a huge community? I don't know, more than twenty people. Okay, okay. I wouldn't say that's huge. Well, I, I say I, more. I don't know how much that is because the actual I'm actually joined the face. There's a Facebook group called uh, uh, Dark Sphere Malifaux, and I I think I'm. I'm not sure how many people that's in there yeah, right now. Yeah, I'm just, but. I'm just curious. It was, a, it was something that came up in a, in another discussion I had where, you know, I look at, I look at fairly healthy communities in my area, um, and then, and then I hear about new strong communities, mm-hmm. and, and it ends up being like six people. Yeah. And, and I think that's great for a group, but then I go, well, okay, it, you know, that's not sort of what I think of. So I'm always trying to gauge. So, Sorry to derail on no, that. No, no, I, 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 you mentioned this on, in, in your podcast, didn't you? And yeah. About how, you know, what it was like back in, you know, first edition of Malifaux. And likewise, I remember the same thing, you know, when I used to do my demo days, and in my case, I would have maybe eight people would turn up, including Andre and some other regulars, <laughs> who would turn up every time I was doing a demo day. Now, yes, it's only eight people, but considering I wasn't that good at doing yeah, demo days, consistent. I was happy with that. I was a lot, you know, Oh, Richie, you remember David Smith? <sighs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Um, he's actually working in leisure games now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Nice and, development uh, there. <laughs> yeah. No, I just thought if we get him to join the podcast, we could have Mr. Anderson and Mr. Smith <laughs> in one episode. Yes, yes, we could. Yes, we could. Well, so, I've, got, I've so, got his email, so I'll message him. So, so, I mean, back to campaigns, though. I do yes. think, you know, I, I think long-running campaigns work, probably work really well for a small group of people who are going to consistently meet and play that out. Absolutely. Whether that consistent is once every six months or not, they're going to play that out. Yeah. Where, on the other hand, I think there's the vast majority of gamers now, and maybe this is the evolution of gaming, maybe I'm completely full of crap, but uh, I think the vast majority of gamers now look at things very similar to how I do, right? I love tournaments, mm-hmm. not just because of the, not necessarily because of the competitiveness, although I do enjoy competitive tabletop games, Gaming. Mm-hmm. However, also, and more importantly, a tournament means I can get three consistent games in in a day. Exactly. Um, I, I was, I mean, I'm currently working on my own skirmish game at the moment. Yep. And it's a campaign game. And I've been thinking about how, you know, I've been talking to people who go to tournaments and this sort of stuff about what they like in the games. Why do they go to tournaments? What do they look for? And it's exactly like you're saying. It's um, so they've got the 
consistency. They're gonna all they're gonna have the games, and they know it's gonna be based. You know, you can't take a campaign game and take it to a tournament and say go crazy because it doesn't work that way. Right. And so one of the things that I'm looking at in my game is um, introducing what would be considered for the campaign side of it special characters. But you could also take them out and use them as a traditional, you know, non-campaign based version, per se. Mm. So therefore, you, you know, can... I, I still want to make a comment there and I'm hoping Andre says it instead of me. What's that? So you mean avatars? <laughs> no, 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 not avatars at all, not avatars at all. Um, but, so, for example, um, if you were to have, you know, a human faction, and what, and they're based around soldiers, you'd have a special character you could hire who would basically yeah. be, um, generic soldier number one. So, but it means you could take, say, three or four of them, push them together into a normal game, and therefore, and therefore it wouldn't be using the campaign rules, it would just be using a tournament style, um, okay. thing. So it's allowing for both, whether it'd work, I have no idea, but, you know, that's kind of how I do my game design, just throw shit out and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> see what sticks. Oh, speaking of your game, Rich, are you about to start designing aliens? Pardon? You're about to start designing uh, yes, aliens yes, for Yes, yes, the alien factions, yes. So, I could, you know, probably maybe do illustrations if you describe things to me. Oh, I'd be more than happy to take you up on that. Absolutely. Um, right. Now... Obviously um, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously <laughs> not now. Um, speaking of, like, balance... Yes. Now, the thing is... Oh, crap, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> but like, balance is a very important thing. It's... It, it, I, I, ah, would... I remember. Uh... What attracted me originally to Malifaux yeah. was it was a lot like Magic the Gathering. Anyone remembers that? Yeah, of course. Because uh-huh. first of all, it was a very lots of magic in there. Even lowly rats could cast spells. I thought mm-hmm. that was odd, but and also the combo potential. Mm-hmm. Lots of like almost game breaking stuff, but everyone had access to it, and there was lots of it. So instead of making everything even, I thought. It's okay to have, like, game-breaking things, but as long as there are lots of them and everyone have lots of choice of different back game-breaking mm. strategies, like in Magic. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned, actually, the comparison with Magic, because I remember when I, back when I first, first, very first got into Malifaux, um, the comparison to Magic was something I noticed myself. And I remember how I looked at crew creation very much like designing a deck, deck in yes. uh, Magic. And I remember after my very first game, and I was playing against a friend of mine, and we were looking over the uh, Rotten Bell sack card, and it's and the, the dawning on us that we could use lure on our own people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, oh my god, think think of the possibilities. Yeah, and I'm thinking like, okay, they. In, it's like the combo potential is on par with Magic the Gathering. Yes. It's like they made like miniature version of Magic the Gathering. Oh my god, this is so genius! <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and it's funny you say that because I remember the, a very similar moment in my first demo where the guy, uh, Jay, who was actually playing as my opponent in the demo, made a comment to somebody else. Well, of course Bill gets it. He was an old Matt player, so he gets these combos. <laughs> right? It's it's natural to him. I, it, the combos are huge, but by the same token, 
I'm, I am such a fan of everything is over, you know, everything is overpowered, so nothing is overpowered, and everybody yeah, gets exactly. overpowered. Everything demos. is overpowered, so nothing is. That's, yeah. The complaint I've heard, and I, I'm not sure I completely buy into this, but I, I understand the argument. The complaint I have heard is the, the gotcha moment. The, the fact that if you have one person who intuitively or intimately understands the combo, mm-hmm. and you have one person who's completely oblivious and can't see ah. it, the person who's oblivious, be it a new player or not, feels like they got cheated out of a good game. Yeah. That they had no chance. And that is such a hopeless feeling that they step away. And I th- I believe M2E tried to eradicate that completely from my Oh, my God. Sorry, Bill, don't take this offensively, but I think it might be American thing. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. Because this is one of the reasons why Americans don't so much like Euro games. Because Euro really? Ga- well, that's... Well, uh, a lot of like... I don't know if you're going to... guys. Huh. Some reviews about board games. <laughs> it's like Americans need to have dice in their games, so you know they, there's a way to overlap, gotcha. override things with luck. Let the luck, you know, somehow pull you Slight through certain tangent things. For a second, but what's a Euro game? I've heard it thrown around a lot. I have no idea what the <laughs> hell a Euro game is. Okay, Euro game is a board game which has absolutely no luck in it. It's all about skill. Right, like what? It's well, oh, Euro Settlers of Catan. Okay. Because Euro game is like it's a board game where you have to basically you allocate things. It's a lot of to do with commerce or like maps or certain things. It's not a war game. It's more like uh, okay. Uh, they're, so, they're like commercial. So, so it's yeah, Richie. It's it's a bu- it's a buzzword right now. Um, yeah. And I think that the two I've heard are Euro games and Ameritrash. There's actually a really <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a really, um, so, so the, that would be the opposite type of board game from a Euro game. Um, God, I wish I could remember which episode it was. There's a, there's a great podcast out there, uh, that I have been listening to, the, uh, Meeples and Miniatures. Okay. Where they, they actually get into this quite a bit because they have a mix of Europeans and Brit, uh, Europeans and Americans and game designers on this podcast. And there's a couple of members who take great offense to, you know, the term Ameritrash or American and also kind of push back on Eurogame. Mm. If I can encapsulate poorly, and understand, I'm encapsulating it poorly <laughs> here, a, you know, Andre is right, a, a non-Eurogame, a quote-unquote Ameritrash or, or American-style game mm-hmm. has a component of luck in there that really can't be controlled that either can pull it out or completely drag a game down for you. Okay. It has, it's it's very direct and abrupt, uh, not a lot of systems that you can make work. Yeah. So, you know, Euro some of the... games, sorry, don't have dice. It's, it's a lot to do about management of resources, yeah, but no dice exactly. at all. Okay. It's like, well, it's all about your decision, nothing else. Well, well it's about your decision, but it's also about, you know, when you look at Catan, it's about being able to trade. It's, it's about worker play, you know, a lot of worker placement. It's about being able to build systems. Okay, so I know, I've, that, I've seen a few games like that, but are there really enough of them for it to be a genre? Oh, yes, yeah. there's a huge amount of them. <laughs> yes. Wow. There's yeah. like thousands, if hundreds, if not thousands. Okay, um, wow. So if you want to have some fun, uh, 
Oh, this is great. So there is a, on Board Game Geek, there's a definition. Uh, Euro games or alternatively designer board games or German style board games are a classification of board games that's very popular on Board Game Geek. I'm reading this right from BGG. Yeah. So this says, uh, most Euro games share the following elements. Player conflict is indirect and usually involves competition over resources or points. Combat is very rare, so no combat. Players are never eliminated from the game. Mm -hmm. There is very little randomness or luck. Randomness that is there is mitigated by having a player decide what to do after a random event happens rather than before. Mm -hmm. Dice are rare, but not heard of, uh, not unheard of. Okay. Uh, the designer of the game is listed on the game's box cover. <laughs> uh, much attention is paid to the artwork and the components. Plastic and metal are very rare. And Euro games have a definite theme. However, the theme most often has very little to do with the actual gameplay. Right. That's <laughs> so, not always the case. <laughs> no, no, no. Of course, I, I don't think any of these is always going to be the case. But that's sort of what the BGG definition is. But there is an entire category wow. of Euro games on Board Game Geek. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the, the also the thing about Euro games. Is if someone who's really good at it just gonna murder someone who doesn't? <laughs> That's the thing. But but I think the other thing I've seen in well in in most of the what what would be considered Euro games that I've seen is that even the person that's getting murdered never feels like they're out of the game. Mm. They always feel like there's a chance they may stick through to the you know they're gonna stick through to the end of the game. Like this said, they're not eliminated. Mm. So. A great example, and, I, and I, I'll go back to Catan because I think it's the easiest one that's most accessible to most people, most people are familiar with. Catan, my wife and I can gang up on my daughter, which we've talked about. Um, we can gang up on my daughter, and my daughter may get upset. She may realize she's going to lose, but she's never actually out of the game and yeah. may still be able to pull it off and win Yeah, if she can figure out how to outplay both of us. Really small chance, but she at least can can try to feel like there is. So it's it's not... So in other words, it's the complete opposite of Monopoly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which, speaking of which, <laughs> so, Phil, whenever you've played Monopoly, where, where's, this, where's the set? Where's the location of Monopoly set for you whenever you've played it? Because things have occurred to me. Where's the location of Monopoly set? Yeah. So I've only played the original Monopoly, which is based off Atlantic City. Cool. Okay. Just checking. I was wondering if that's the case with all London, with all American versions, because in, in the England it's played with London. Really? Yeah. And it's one of the interesting things because um, uh, that is why uh, a little bit of history for you guys, for anyone listening. It's why we now in the UK spell jail with a J. Because oh. when Monopoly came over, of course, it's Atlantic City, and it was spelled with a J. Whereas originally we spelt it G A O L. And that board game came over. It, it became very popular over here. Um, we changed it to London rather than being Atlantic City, but kept go to jail spelled with a J. Interesting. I did not know that. I didn't realize. So, wow. So now, now I'm now I'm curious. So, you curious is, about Monopoly? Come on. What, what is Covent, well Covent Garden? It has to be on Monopoly. So what? Where? Where is that? Which property is that? Monopoly is a bad game. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, let me have a look if I can pull up Monopoly board. 
Oh god. Look, hide your Monopoly Get yourself a game called Acquire. This is what Monopoly should have been like. Okay, I just had to, I just had to Google British Monopoly. This is fantastic. (laughs) See, you don't get this in other podcasts. And that's, yeah, you know, if you ever hear reference to Old Kent Road, that's the worst of them all for them. Yeah, I, I'm seeing that Whitechapel Road and Old <coughs> Kent Road. Why did they make so Mayfair many? Mayfair and Park Lane, well, Park Place and Boardwalk, okay, that's... You that's, know, they made huge amount of, like, really alternative Monopoly games, I don't know why, there's, like, Football Monopoly, yeah, Star Wars, here. Star so Wars Monopoly, oh, yeah. so Game it's Monopoly, okay. it does exist. <laughs> Coventry, Piccadilly, in, 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 was it Leicester? Mm. You got Bond Street, um, Oxford Street and Regent Street, they're quite big ones, and Mayfair and Park Lane. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, this is great. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why, that's the reason why in the UK we say jail, we spoke with a J, whereas originally it was with a G. It's all thanks to Monopoly. Okay, who started talking about <laughs> Monopoly? I'm gonna kill that person. This is all part of a hobby. What? Come on! <coughs> <laughs> oh God! How did we get onto Eurogame and American American oh, games? <laughs> I'm trying to backtrack mentally here, and I'm lost. <laughs> <coughs> so yeah, about the, that uh, getting making games more accessible for newbies. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. what about chess? How do you make that more accessible? Oh, I don't think you can. Chess is a game that it just hurts my brain. I have not got the intelligence to play chess. It's as simple as that. Oh, well, I was in a chess club. I am not intelligent enough. (laughs) I was one of the top players in my school, actually. Well, but here's... Okay, well, now, see, that's going to shoot a hole in it if you were one of the top players, Andre. I was going to ask, chess is the first game I learned to play. Really? And, yeah, that I... And and my dad was a firm believer in burnt hand teaches best, so he just beat the crap out of me (laughs) and learned how to start winning. Um, but that was the first game I learned to play. I went from chess to go, which was, um, again, very much a, a you, you just keep losing. Um, then I moved into card games, cribbage and poker, where my grandfather and uncles believed that you shouldn't sit down and play those games without money that you're going to lose, because if you don't have money on the line, it's not a real game. So, but, but where I'm intrigued on that is that was my, as a, as a child, right, as, as, you know, eight, nine, <laughs> 10, 12, 14 years old, those are the games that I'm playing, mm-hmm. which very much are competitive win-lose games. Mm-hmm. While I enjoy storytelling and role-playing games and everything else, when I get back to a game with opponents, I still enjoy win-lose, even if it's not, even if I'm not win at all costs, I enjoy the competitive aspect of games. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's, that's Actually, the first game I learned was a card game. I can't remember which one it was, but we have our own variation. So our bridge, for example, is different from your bridge. Very oh. much different. Yeah. <coughs> and, um, that's I think okay. It's just like jail, you guys will adapt eventually. <laughs> well, also, I think we have the most popular card game, I think, was called The Game of Fool. Oh, sorry, one second, just interrupt. And also, just to say another thing, if you look at the board of Monopoly, if you look at the British version, you'll notice that the, the um, policeman is wearing a, a flat cap, as opposed to the London yes. bowl. Again, Boom. because it's directly from... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I remember when... When I was a five years old, mm-hmm. I actually, pl- uh, 
Oh, yeah. I played, uh, well, he was a relative, but uh, he was an adult, and I can't remember, I'm not actually sure what, uh, he's, okay, my uh, dad's uh, aunt, he was a son of my dad's aunt, mm-hmm. I don't know what what is that called. Maybe uh, cousin, wouldn't it? No, not, not quite cousin, no. Anyway, one of those, I think it's yeah. second cousin or something. Like yeah, that. second it's, cousin. Something cousin. Yeah. And he was an adult, and I, we played uh, our variation of bridge where you get 100 points. And I actually beat him 100-0, being a five-year-old. Hmm. And he actually went nuts after, because he was actually <laughs> a card player. I, I think I just got lucky, but that really demoralized him. I don't even know how you play bridge. <laughs> I've never played it. I don't remember how you play but it's 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 interesting what you said. Bill, it was thirty years ago. <laughs> you you started playing with the win lose games and more importantly via the um, you know beat you into the ground so you learn to climb back out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're going. And you said we're focusing around you know between eight and twelve. So you know before then doesn't really count. <coughs> After then, by then you already set in. So I'm trying to think of what games I played around then. For me, this is interesting because for me it was uh, Hero Quest. Hmm. And again, okay. we, we did it via um, com- cooperative storytelling. So I'm wondering, you know, how much of an influence does these sort of early things have then on how you play the rest of it? And so now, exactly. so many of my games are co-op, are co- you know, things that I try and either do myself or I'm invest- investing into, I'm focusing on cooperative storytelling. How much of it is because that's what you did when you were eight years old? Makes you wonder. <laughs> now, the thing is, I discovered role-playing quite late in my life. I was 16 when I discovered role-playing. So, I, I this concept was completely new to me at that time. I, I don't know. Uh, before <laughs> that, it was always competitive games. Mm. But you do like your competitive games. You know, you loved Malifaux. That was, that's a competitive game. Well, I like all sorts of games, that's mm. the thing. Mm. Um, but uh, again, what really mainly attracted me to D&D was art. Oh, speaking of which, it's, it's got nothing to do with the subject, but uh, remember how, well, you all know what I really like on dead miniatures. Yeah. I know you both don't like them. I very don't mind much. them, I don't mind them. But I know Bill... You know, yeah, I'm not a big fan. You both really like zombie films, though. Right? Uh, <laughs> I'm not a real horror film guy. <laughs> so it depends no. on what type of zombie film you're talking about. But, you know, TV series is like, uh, the, Walking Dead? Love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I can't stand zombie film. I can't huh. bear them. I never watch them. Is it, <laughs> right, okay. And at the same time, I like undead miniatures. And I was thinking, why is it so? And then I remembered. Mm-hmm. It's because of a D and D, the art of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. That, that's why, that's why. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how this compares to other people, but I mean, like I said, I'm not a big fan of zombie films or zombie media <laughs> in general, depending on how it focuses. Well, um, I actually those, find it a bit sickening, to be honest. <laughs> a lot of the whole, you know, undead flesh eaters. Ooh, let's see something eating someone's brain. I'm like, eh, take that away. I'm not interested in that. But it's those that focus on uh, interaction with survivors, um, I'm very big into. So my my, my personal my personal favourite zombie film oh, is um, I can't. I'm, uh, people, most people are gonna hate this, but um, it's actually the film Zombieland. 
I, I love that movie. It actually has. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> it's I've never heard the about right it. level of humor, and it has. I think it portrays survivors in a very interesting, unique, and I, I'm, I watch this guy. I can see this happening. You know, it's not. It doesn't focus on. I mean, okay, the ending is an action focus, but it's not all. <laughs> let's spend the entire film watching people shooting zombies. <laughs> <laughs> which I do right. feel things like the uh, Romero films kind of do and I'm not such a big fan on. But see, that goes back to Walking Dead. Walking Dead isn't really a TV show about zombies. Mm. Right? It's, it's about... We don't see a single zombie at all. Right. <laughs> it's, it is about completely the survivors and how they're adapting to the world, to each other, and yeah. you know how they continue to survive. You know, it's interesting... Sometimes, like, ends up what the man's worst enemy is another man, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not enough for me to start watching this. And the only zombie film I ever watched was Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> I like that film. <laughs> it's all right. I prefer Hot Father. <laughs> yes, that is that is definitely. I think that is the best of the uh, Quinetta trilogy. Yeah. Oh, did you watch World's End? Yeah, I didn't think it was as, as good. I quite like it, yeah, but. <laughs> But if you, I'd rec- I would recommend Zombieland. It's really, I, it's one of my favourite zombie films, if not my favourite zombie film. And mm. I, and also, I think it's um, the the rules you have to follow us. They're great. Yes. Yes. It's <laughs> the amount of times I actually use those rules in normal conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and mo- occasionally, you get one person in the group who twigs, and they're like, hey, and everyone else is like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Yeah. It's a what? Rule two, double tap. <laughs> you know, at one point I was actually trying to create a miniature game which was like a Euro game almost. Mm. Is so basically, to me. Yeah. yeah. That basically there's no chance, only second guessing. Second guessing is a big part. Because for example, remember I said it was like a, uh, a scissors paper stone? Mm-hmm. Because your character has not one profile, but several. And then depending on which mode you use, you have like uh, movement mode, mobility mode, uh, aggressive mode, defensive mode, low mm-hmm. profile mode, and they all have like different set of attributes and possibly even different skills. Mm. And you actually have sort of put a card face down, you know, in which how you're gonna f- begin in your turn, and uh, mm. when you're about to engage, you don't know in which mode your opponent is, so. You can kind of predict, but not always. And, you know, you do a fixed amount of damage, which is calculated by, you know, obviously against tougher opponents, mm. you do less damage than that sort of thing. I mean, br- briefly touching back into um, Eurogame versus um, Ameritrash. Ameritrash. Uh, it's interesting, because I, I remember a conversation that was <laughs> online during Malifaux First Edition, and it was with... Um, I'm, I'm assuming, Bill, you'll remember this guy. Uh, Ian, calm down. Yeah. And I remember a conversation that I, I saw him engaging in, and one of the things that he really hated about Malifaux was the fact that you could play the perfect game, but throw down a black joker and lose at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And how luck, and this is, the, I remember this is something that he said, he said he absolutely hates the fact that you could, like, you could play this perfect game, everything you do is perfect, because of this luck factor, it threw it all out, and I mean, um, so what do you? But do? surely it's not as much luck factor as if you're rolling dice. No, but but what do you guys, What do you two think of that? I mean, obviously you both enjoyed Malifaux, obviously. <laughs> you know, but did that factor detract or add to it in your case? Oh, 
such a loaded question because I was involved in that discussion on the <laughs> other side of the discussion. <laughs> so, so you know all of um, oh, you, you remember then. Yeah, you're making me cringe here because <laughs> um, the conversations I had with. I had. Uh, okay, at one point when I was playing 40k in my local games that. workshop. Sorry, when I was playing 40k in my local games workshop, I at one had to like shoot a units of a unit of Dark Elder with a character in it, uh-huh. and I basically separated my dice in you know, like one dice for the character. Oh, and I, I, I hit a whole unit with a big template weapon. Yeah. And I had to basically roll two wounds for everything. I need twos. So I separated one dice for the character and then threw the big thing of dice for all the basic Dark Elder and I roll all ones. (laughs) Then I roll that one remaining dice for a character and roll another one. Yeah, the amount of the amount of time. So I'm not a fan of. I, I'm not a big fan of dice games. I prefer games where I prefer. It's one of the big things I loved about Malifaux. I prefer card based games. Um, now, there's a lot of dice games out there. Most games are dice based. The amount of times I've had somebody look at me and go, "Oh my god, statistically, it's impossible that you just rolled that to the good or to the ill, right? All yes. ones, all sixes, or whatever." I have such I, so so my buddy Dixon will say I I roll quote unquote statistically normal except there's no middle numbers in my statistics. <laughs> right? So you know it, I, I seem to roll very much on extremes, not just because that's what you remember, but very very much when you, people okay, watch roll it guys, becomes a joke. I'm really sorry. We need to start wrapping up now. I've got maybe <laughs> no. another few minutes. Well, sorry. Yeah, and let me touch on so the the Black Joker discussion with luck. Yeah. When it came to Malifaux, one of the things I loved so much about Malifaux, still really. Uh, really like about Malifaux, mm-hmm. even though they've changed it a bit, is the way the card mechanic works with luck and how player skill in managing your hand of cards versus your deck of cards mm-hmm. was more important to mitigate that luck. So in that particular discussion, there was a component of player skill that was being missed. And that component of player skill was the decision to remove the component of luck Mm. around the black joker by holding it in your hand and decreasing your hand size by one. Yeah. And that's, that's a skill. It's a, it's a, it's a, a player skill decision that you're making to manage that resource. I can either feed certain things into my deck and based on the the luck, and I say quote unquote luck because it's, it's not pure, it's not the same pure statistical luck that rolling dice is. Yeah. Right? Every time I take, take a card out through a flip or into my hand or through a play changes the overall mix of cards that are in my deck and thus the amount of luck that's going to be involved in getting a certain card. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have this hand and you have the whole cheating mechanic is where that player skill comes in. Yeah. And Actually, that becomes incredibly important. To me, what made Malifaux really unique is the combination of you have this resource for overriding luck plus this whole idea of triggers built into the suits, and that's something right. I don't think anyone else could repeat in any way. I agree. So it's ran- in, in the, big- the biggest piece of this is I would completely agree that the deck is a way to put randomization into the game, mm-hmm. 
but I do not agree that it's luck-based because calling it luck-based is very similar to trying to say poker is a luck game. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. Also, actually, a lot of, uh, you know, problems with the second edition. Uh, It was the fact that, uh, well, is it second edition? Yeah, it is second edition. Um, It's the fact that... uh, you had very limited amount of models in the beginning, and especially since early models were kind of more simpler than the Wave 2, for example. So the, the beginning games were like really limited because of that, but then uh, you have uh, all the other stuff started coming out, and it was a bit more complicated, and they obviously had much... Yeah. Mm. So Malifaux is still good. Yeah, I respect your opinion on that. Did I say all those words right? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, oh. okay. So Andre said we have to wrap up because yes, we, we have do. An update. Richard, I miss you in Leisure Games. <laughs> do you know how long it takes me to get there? Yes, I know. It takes me a I very know. long time. Are but you gonna come play Infinity at some at, point? At some point, I've I've from, I've, I've, I've pledged that at some point this year I will. Okay. <laughs> so I've still got another. How long? I've got about nine. Like nine months to go. Yeah. You're good to. So I'm okay. Oh, I'm okay. Are you coming to salute? By the way, I don't know. I'm don't definitely know. coming. I, I I'm definitely to, coming. I still need to work out if I want to or not. I mean, it's guild the, ball. I, I did. The Kickstarter didn't do anything for me. It may mm. be because I haven't experienced it, but there was just something about it. I was just like, mm. it just didn't do anything for me. My friend John has tried to convince uh, our buddy Dixon about that. As he said, it didn't do anything till he watched the actual gameplay. Mm. That's the gameplay that is that has really gotten him into everything else. Um, now. The other side is, you know, to to use out of my same gaming group, I have my buddy Dixon who basically went, it has a, it, even going to victory points, it has a goal condition to earn victory points, I'm not playing a sports game. <laughs> I'm like, but none of the models have anything, to do. they're not sports looking, doesn't matter, it's a sports game. <laughs> but, but it's a skirmish game, it's a sports game. So because it has a ball, yes. Okay. <laughs> There's no arguing that. So, you know, now I kind of want to put balls on all of the, uh, all the models of War Machine to see if it keeps playing. <laughs> uh, would it help if the ball had spikes? Don't know. Don't know. According to him, it's a sports game. It's got a ball. So. Uh, no, this is so much you, you know, putting balls on all the War Machine miniatures. It's like you were putting dead thousands. Exactly. <laughs> This is so you. Right. Richie, you want to do the wrap-up? Okay, yeah. So, um, I think that's there. I think that's it then, isn't it? So, um, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, I think we've covered all our topics this time, I think. Oh, Richie, what are you going to call this episode? Because we're already ahead of it's February be, 2015. It's going to be February Part 2. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you just call it the same thing, February 2015. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that'll case confusion. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, bye everyone. Take care and thanks for listening. Bye bye now. Oh,